Thank you very much. I'm calling the meeting to order. Um, we have a roll call, please. Trustee Lawrence? Uh, yes, I am here. Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Lujanani called ahead. He'll be absent. Trustee Zorthian? Here. Trustee Jensen? Maybe running late. We'll check later, but we have a quorum. Thank you. Um, I will ask for any public comment. Is there anyone here who would like to make a comment for the board consideration? Not at this time. Thank you. Hearing none, I will move into the uh, agenda and turn it over to our CEO. Great. Uh, thank you, Trustee Lawrence, and good morning, uh, trustees, and welcome to the spring 2016 board retreat. Uh, so we'll jump right in, and I'll, I'll just share for context setting that over the next day and a half, um, we planned a series of presentations and uh, discussions with you that will continue to fuel and shape our future direction uh, with a keen eye towards providing you with pertinent industry trends and challenges that we face currently and anticipate in the coming years. I'd like to uh, thank Trustee Lawrence and Lujanani uh, for their assistance in preparing uh, this, this retreat's agenda, along with special thanks as usual to uh, Susanna, uh, Mike, and Terry Lightfoot uh, for their uh, support in pulling everything together. Uh, for today, um, the major thrust is to provide you with an update on the strategic planning process to date. Uh, in order to do so, we've structured uh, today's agenda as a series of informative building blocks to share with you some of the key topics that will hopefully provide you with the relevant knowledge and context uh, for the plan itself as it currently stands, which you'll hear about at the end of the day today. Uh, but to begin, we will have an education topic that your board actually requested in our fall retreat, uh, and that is on defining and achieving population health, understanding uh, that, that there have been discussions all along about uh, trends toward uh, high-performing organizations, uh, moving towards population health as a way to uh, both provide care and to finance care, and, uh, and that has been a, a key part of our efforts in strategic planning for the next uh, three to five years. So uh, this, time, this timing and this topic uh, are particularly uh, relevant today. Uh, and as you know, this then is a continuation of the education series we've started in January. Some of them that build nicely upon this, like the discussion around the uh, social determinants of health, uh, social and economic determinants of health, and, and things like that. Uh, we're optimistic that this retreat will be as uh, thought-provoking and value-added as our fall retreat. Uh, but before we begin, I would like to call your attention to a set of three questions that you, we have posted in front of you here. Uh, these particular questions are about the strategic plan and the update that you'll get later. But as I said, the building blocks will, uh, of today's discussion uh, will hopefully address and inform some of those, uh, uh, your ability to, to provide some context and feedback to us specifically related to those questions which we'll address at the conclusion of the strategic plan discussion. So perhaps throughout the day, you can uh, look back at uh, those questions or refer to them. Uh, we will, again, post them at the end. They will be here throughout the day. And just kind of th use that to frame some of your thoughts uh, uh, as we go out, as we go uh, forward with the, the presentations. Um, I'd like to ask you to be, oh, I said be mindful of those. So with that, um, one last thing I'd like to do is a bit of housekeeping uh, uh, order is to introduce to, I think, all of you at this point, um, Ishwari Venkataraman. Hey, Trustee Jensen, welcome. Uh, Ishwari, if you don't mind standing for a second. 
Uh, Iswari joined us about a month ago now as our Director of Strategic uh, Development and Business Planning. And uh, she has, or Business Development and Planning, I should say, and she has jumped right in, rolled up her sleeves and been fantastic. Iswari comes to us most recently from SG2, actually, the uh, agency that we're working with on our strategic plan. She was not on the engagement, uh, but in fact was living in the community and working with them with other clients around the country. Uh, so we are very thrilled to have her bring her expertise. In addition to working on the consultant side, she has worked with a couple of provider delivery organizations uh, throughout the country and, uh, as I said, lives in the area now and we're so very thrilled to have her here. She's been very instrumental in uh, the strategic planning efforts since she, she actually started working with us before she started uh, just to bone up and uh, that has really helped to get her uh, contributing uh, and she helped to participate in uh, um, arranging for today's first presentation. So I wanted to welcome her to uh, you all uh, and, and she's playing a big role behind the scenes. So welcome and, and thank say you. Say your name one more time. Oh, I practice this. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> Ishwari Venkataraman. Venkataraman. Yeah. It's, it's only a tongue twister the first five times. Okay. After that, you got it. Okay, thank you, Ishwari. So with that, I'd like to uh, hop right in and we'll turn it over to our presenter, uh, Dr. David Katz. David is um, um, kind of one of these double threats. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him in person, but we've had a chance to communicate um, over the telephone as we prepared for uh, today's presentation. But uh, David uh, currently serves as a principal and executive director with the advisory board company, of which many of you are familiar with, and uh, you, you know that we've had a longstanding relationship with for uh, consulting and uh, advisory um, um, uh, services. Uh, David, I said a double threat because he's both a physician and an attorney, um, so he can fix us up and then pr um, uh, uh, represent us if anything goes wrong. Uh, <laughs> but he's worked for the advisory board for a number of years, over, over 18 years now, and I mentioned his current role. In his current role, he... Um, he um, uh, works with uh, providers and organizations around the country to make sure that he provides education and um, ed consultation on a variety of areas that are critical to hospital and healthcare systems. Uh, he leads the faculty in presenting research findings on multiple advisory board research programs, including uh, the Physician Executive Council, Cardiovascular and Oncology Roundtables, Marketing and Planning Leadership Councils, and obviously Population Health. Uh, early in his career, he worked full-time in clinical practice and did research where he published widely in peer-reviewed journals and authored multiple book chapters in neuroscience, uh, medical le legal issues, and medical ethics. He also served as one of the leading international, in one of the leading international law firms as a healthcare and regulatory attorney, working within the intersections of medicine and law. Uh, he maintained his faculty appointment at the uh, Harvard Medical School for 20 years. Um, I particularly like this. He's a blue devil. Uh, he went to Duke undergrad and also got, uh, got his uh, medical degree from Duke and his law degree from Georgetown University Law Center. He completed his intern residency and chief residency at the Harvard Medical School and affiliated uh, hospitals. So with that, um, uh, da David, uh, welcome to us. And um, you have before you, in addition to myself and uh, our general counsel, our, our trustees uh, and uh, the governing body for our organization and about three additional members of the audience who are all affiliated with the organization. So I'll turn it over to you. Del Vecchio, Del Vecchio thank you so much. Um, I am the one that feels absolutely privileged to be with you all. And uh, 
that was a beautiful and moving introduction, though I'm afraid you've put everybody to sleep. But I will say that my mother would have been very proud to hear you uh, go through all those accomplishments that uh, somebody must have sent to you. Um, I'm not sure how many of them are accurate, but thank you very much. And in all seriousness, it, it is a privilege to be with you guys today. And I know I don't have all day, so I'm not going to take too much time to introduce anything further about myself other than to say it's hard to believe, but I've been at the advisory board now for 20 years. So the last two decades really have been spent helping uh, hospitals and systems like your own and internationally, but concentrating, in my particular case, mostly in the U.S. So we're going to talk today about population health, obviously, and I don't have a lot of time to give you a history of population health, but um, Del Vecchio suggests I might start with a tiny bit on, um, you know, what is population health, why are we even talking about it? And I, I was thinking about how could I summarize this up really quickly so we could get into the material. And what I was thinking was that, you know, it's one of the hottest topics in healthcare today for the pretty elegant reason that the whole notion is if you provide excellent population health management, you're going to be able to provide excellent high-quality health at a very low cost relative, obviously, to the fee-for-service system that's been, you know, part of our healthcare system since day one. Um, there's a lot that's been going on. CMS, obviously very relevant to you all, uh, has been very, very motivated to move in this direction. And they're trying to help providers or push providers to align their incentives and motives in terms of their investments in care management infrastructure. They've been thinking this will offer access to new data. All of these things are very important steps on the migration to, quote, unquote, population health. And it's been a really busy year, let me just say, before we even get into things. Um, as you know, the Affordable Care Act survived its second trip to the Supreme Court. CMS continues to roll out really an array of value-based payment models. Uh, the third open enrollment period on the public exchange is now officially complete. And I could get into the private sector. There are a lot of folks in terms of health plans and employers that are also testing all sorts of strategies. They want to rein in their healthcare spending as well. And not all of them, but many of them are betting on population health. So uh, with that, I'm not even going to get into all the things that have happened since January when CMS announced the ACOs participating in Medicare's three big ACO programs this year. But I'll tell you, it's more than 450 now, hugely increased. And we can spend time talking about that later, or we could do it on another occasion. But lots of interesting information as background here. But I thought, again, since I only have an hour with you, why don't I turn everybody's attention to the real challenge? And I'll keep this at a fairly high level, so don't worry, I won't get too granular. But the question would be, how could you all move strategically to build this kind of capability, a population health management capability that would, of course, deliver sustained clinical value for your patients and sustained financial value for yourselves uh, and your community and all the commitments that you've made, both in the past and in the future? How could you get to a point that you could begin paying back that $200 million to the county or whatever else 
is on your plate. I will share with you in this graphic that organizations who have experience in managing population risk know that for any given avoidable cost, there are three principal levers, and you're looking at them here, needed to address that cost. So this wouldn't matter, but any avoidable cost. You would need to have plan management, partner engagement, and care management. So just to go over this, plan levers deal with benefit design and utilization management tools to basically reward the right behaviors on the part of both patients and providers. Partner engagement, that involves working with physicians and other providers so you can reduce avoidable costs through strategies like performance management, clinical guideline development, or even things like referral protocols. And then care management includes tactics with which you're familiar, I'm sure, such as medical homes and care coordination efforts, all designed to bring much more comprehensive, integrated care to the most needy patients. Now, I shaded that box for a reason, the one on the right. It's here that organizations like yours have the most control and can, can, and can position themselves, basically, to capture early costs as well as quality gains. So to succeed in population health, your system has got to elevate care management from kind of a siloed sideline activity to a strategic imperative and a core institutional competency. And I know Ashwari is familiar with this and she's working hard and will be working harder to make this happen. But let me just uh, add something here so that you understand her efforts and my efforts to move you in this direction. Very important for the board to understand and everybody else that's with us today uh, that when I introduce the term care management, I need to draw a distinction and I apologize ahead if this seems overly subtle, but it is actually quite important. And it's the distinction between care management and managed care. Uh, I have to tell you, there's perhaps no question I'm asked more frequently when I travel around working with other members than the question, how is this going to be any different than managed care back in the 1990s? I saw that movie, and I know how that one ended. I'm not going to attempt this morning anyway, to predict whether current efforts in healthcare transformation will meet the objectives such as improving quality, increasing access, lowering cost. Uh, but even without that prediction, I can tell you, I believe there are some very important distinctions between what's happening today, 2016, and I call this the care management era, and what happened 20 years ago, which I'm referring to as the managed care era. One of the most significant differences is that the primary model for cost reduction in the managed care area, you'll remember this, was to put a series of increasingly onerous obstacles between the patient and the provider. And again, I'm sure I'm not the only one that remembers this, but long wait times, tightly controlled narrow networks, mandatory referrals to see a specialist, pre-op for really anything more complex than reading you know, your blood pressure, utilization review, and really at the top of every stop along the way, make the patient answer the same questions, fill out more forms, repeat the complete patient history, and so on. You get the picture. I think it would be difficult to imagine a more consumer unfriendly process. Well, the focus that we need to be thinking about is access, convenience, lower cost, more proactive care, 
getting the patient to the right care they need as quickly and efficiently as possible and in the right place. So I'm going to draw on the lessons and experiences of the country's preeminent care managers, and I'm going to show you the same emphasis, not developing an increasingly inane series of tactics to keep the patient out of the system, but developing increasingly sophisticated and efficient models for bringing the system to the patient and in the ways that patients want and need. I have to say, as much as anything, I believe that characterizes the era of today, the era of care management. So when we're talking about population health, um, I think there's a lot of positive here. Three things are true if you're Del Vecchio or you're any other executive and you want to usher or prod the organization into that era, and that really applies to everybody on the call today. That's what's indicated in the boxes running left to right. First, this will require a radically different care delivery model. It's not a tweak to the current model. It's a very different model. And I have to tell you, that's precisely why it's so hard. Second, you have to build a prioritized, disciplined investment plan. You know there are assets you don't yet have, but you need. And at the same time, I'm sure you all know, you don't have lots of excess capital sitting around with which to acquire them. Um, that goes without saying. Third, you have to be the leader of that change across the rest of the organization. No organization is going to get there organically. Alameda is just like everyone else. The chasms to cross are just too vast. And some of the metaphors I'll just tell you I've heard executives use are things like turning the Titanic 90 degrees at high speed or Moses leading his people through the unforgiving desert to kind of an uncertain future. I mean, I think those metaphors are understandable in the picture they paint of the scope of the leadership challenge ahead. So I'm just talking here to the board and Del Vecchio, some others, Ishwari. Not an easy task by any means. And it's easy for me to talk about it on the telephone or in person, but for you all, definitely not easy. That said, all three that I've outlined for you on this graphic are critical to the success of your population health management efforts. And I have to say that that is precisely why I've been so excited by our material. We don't have three or four hours to run through everything, but I'm going to share with you specific steps that you need to take now in order to make meaningful progress on this journey. So to put the work in context, I'll just show you what we did spending about two years studying the best of the best of care management. We wanted to learn from them. What attributes did they think were absolutely critical? What did they think wasn't really that important? So you see across the top our definition of best in class. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but things like significant experience with risk-based contracts. That's what you're going to go with with population health. Strong primary care capabilities. A robust care management infrastructure. And that, in fact, may extend beyond the boundaries of just your organization at Alameda. And crucially, sustained financial success. Meaning I made sure that to get through our filter, I could see real evidence of an ability to control population health costs over time, not just achieve one-time savings. Uh-uh. And bottom of the graphic, you can see just a handful of the folks that we identified. Now, you no doubt have seen case studies from some of those organizations before, but I think the research I'm going to present with you today, even though it's only a part of it, is a first-in-kind. It's really the first systematic attempt anywhere not to document what any one successful population management organization has done, but instead to distill for you 
the common threads across all successful population management organizations. So that's why we call it kind of a, a blueprint. Now, before we get into the key elements, let me tell you what they're not. What we found was though the systems had similar performance achievements, the best of the best looked, in fact, very different. So I want to make sure you guys understood that. They varied in size. They hailed from every kind of market. And they ranged from standalone groups to large integrated delivery systems. Some were in business for over half a century. Others had come together in the last five. Very different business models. Some almost exclusively built on risk capitation. Others, no. They've been working predominantly in shared savings and other pay-for-performance models. Some in rural areas, largely homogeneous populations. Others from urban areas working with very, very diverse populations. So destined you should know. Our conclusion from all that was it's not structural factors that make these groups successful. And that's important for you to understand. That is simply not the case. I heard very often people talking at conferences that the only organizations that are going to succeed um, in high-cost areas or low-cost areas, um, I've heard both actually, are the ones that could be successful in risk. Or only multi-specialty groups can do it. Or only organizations serving a largely homogeneous population. I'll tell you right now. Go through the data anytime you want later. The data do not bear out those conclusions. So, of course, if it's not structural factors, you want to ask me, well, what is it? But if you've printed this out, a tape on this graphic. If you haven't printed it out, just come back to it and know that this is critical. The thing that is critical to success has been these various organizations approach to patient care. That's what's distinct. How they've organized their care processes, their staffing, their IT investments around specific patient care models, and how they've built a culture that supports the singular goal of population health management. So today, in our small few minutes together, it's all about understanding the specific things these organizations do well that enable their outcomes. And I need to start with what's perhaps, at the highest level, the most important thing. At the core, the most critical thing that every one of these organizations realized and acted upon is that population management is not, is not about managing one population. It's about managing three. And those three require different goals, resources, and care models. You can see the three on this page critical that you understand this. You have the highest risk, those with at least one complex illness, multiple comorbidities, multiple psychosocial problems. This is, for example, your poorly controlled congestive heart failure patient. Guess what? She also has diabetes, many other chronic conditions. Everyone in the room knows this group very well. It's the three to 5% of the population that in any given year is going to drive the majority of your spending. Four this group, the highest risk, the goal is twofold, intensive, comprehensive, proactive management and trading high-cost acute care services for low-cost care management, dot, 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 of course, wherever and whenever it's clinically effective and reasonable to do so. The second population, this is the medium risk or what we've come to think of as the rising risk. And I think that distinction is really important and actually more accurate. Typically, this is about 20 to 30% of your patients. They may have multiple conditions, but more importantly, 
they have multiple risk factors that, left unaddressed, will eventually push up into that high-cost category. So think of this patient, perhaps, as the diabetic, and he's also obese and he smokes. Four rising risk. Again, two overarching goals. Dr. Kepler, You're trying to avoid it. Excuse I'm sorry? me. Excuse me. I, um, because I process information peculiarly, um, I need to stop you and ask some questions. Can I do that? Um, you can, of course. This is your morning, but we don't have a lot of time. I was going to save the questions to the end, but go right ahead. Yeah, but if I don't get it along the way, then you, you've lost Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely correct. Sure. Okay, so my question is, in the three distinct populations, when you say 5%, 15 35 is that a, a national grouping of how, pop, uh, how patients fall, or is that yes. specific to No, nope, that's a, national. It's all populations. Okay, it's a great so then question. will you your apply— your population as well as the population in suburban Washington, D.C., where people are wealthy. It's—, uh, it's Every population, when you look at the data, you can break them down this way. Okay, so so you're telling me then that safety net hospitals will in fact have this proportion, and it will be exactly the same. That's as exactly you're... right, but I would never say the percentages are that precise. But you'll get the major point. That's right. Interesting. Okay, thank In other you. Words, you may you may prove to me at some point you have seven percent high risk, or you know, but that it's a range. That's why, you know, you can see rising risk patients. It's 15 to 35%. But, yes, this covers the safety net hospitals. We've looked at this very, very carefully. Okay, thank you. No, thank you. It's a great question. I appreciate you interrupting at the beginning so that you will understand as I break it down further. So, again, all I wanted you to get out of the rising risk group here were two goals for you. You want to avoid unnecessary spending, and this is critical here, keep those patients from becoming high risk. And as I'll show you later, if we have time, about, and this is true for the safety net regions as well, please understand I thought about that, about one in five, about 20% of rising risk patients become high risk every year. So for you all, you need to understand it's that statistic as much as any other in the United States that really is at the cornerstone of the cost growth problem. So you can imagine if one in five move into that higher category every year, that's a big problem, not just for Alameda, but for many others. The third patient type is the low-risk patient. And again, maybe you have a few less of these than you'd like. Maybe you're at the 50% range instead of even my low end of 60%. But again, it's the major point I'm trying to make. Roughly... This percentage, this range here of patients falls into that category. They're either healthy or, and this may be the case for many of yours, if they do have a chronic condition, it's usually pretty well managed. So you can still be low risk if that's your condition. For the low risk, the two goals are you keep the patient healthy and you keep them loyal to you. Now, the moment, because we could spend a lot of time going into each of these patient groups, let me ask you to focus on the key point of the page. Every single successful population health manager that we studied that got through our filters, those that were in very similar situations to you, safety net hospitals, those that weren't, every single one without fail segmented their patient population in 
very close, if not identical to, the way I've described for you here. Obviously, not everyone does it exactly the same way. In fact, not everyone uses these exact terms, but all of them are doing it. So if you took away only one point from my short period of time with you, let it be this one. Population health management is about managing the health of three populations. Okay. We learn from the systems that the one reason they segregate the population is it helps them avoid pitfalls that trip up so many other organizations. Here are the pitfalls. Take a look. First, there's no one-size-fits-all care model. You could try to put all your patients into primary care medical homes, but you know what? That would be unnecessary, and frankly, it would be pretty wasteful. Also, not all patients want or need to be in a medical home, right? I mean, not at all. Low-risk patients, they don't need to be placed in enhanced primary care. And for high-cost patients, the evidence is medical home, not sufficient. It's might be helpful, but it alone will not lead to the kinds of cost reductions and quality improvements that you're going to need to make if you're going to be effective with those patients. And then take a look at the top right. Physicians, you know this, they're overworked as it is. You're just adding another large group of patients to their lists. Now, I'll show you some data later again if we have time, but I believe the boxes on this page are the primary reasons that some of the studies looking at the medical home have asserted that they may, in fact, increase costs. So, this is a common misperception that people have about population health management. I want the board to get this, that it's about building a medical home or some other, some other investment that will become the single clinical care model. No. Medical homes do have an important role to play, especially for that second population, the rising risk. But having a medical home, even a very good one, is not nearly the same thing as being a successful population health manager. Now, just like high-performing population health organizations don't rely on one clinical model, they've also largely eschewed the use of pilots. And I just want to point this out quickly, or they've long since moved past them. They are focusing on large-scale transformation. Now, I'm not telling Alameda never to pilot a care transformation initiative, but I will caution you. Given the time frames in front of you, a huge risk is that you pilot yourselves to death. So, for several reasons, Population health managers are stratifying their patient populations. There is one more reason, and it gets to the heart of the economics of risk. And again, I just want everyone to understand this. Each group has a different role to play in the economic model of risk management. So it's another important slide. Let me spend a little bit of time here. We've shown you some financial modeling that illustrates the impact of different types of care management. So first, the basics of the model, and they're laid out for you. Here's a capitated contract, 25,000 lives under Medicare. They're getting a 3.5% a year increase in their PMPM rate per member per month. Their patient population is broken down into three parts. You have the high risk, remember, 5% of patients, the medium or rising risk of 20%, low risk in their case, 75%. Think of that as a pretty typical situation under a capitated contract. Now, you could change the PMPM growth rate or tweak the percentage of patients in each category. It's not going to change the broad conclusions. So first, on the bottom line on the graph, with absolutely no care management, the contract's going to fail immediately. Costs for the entire group go up 5% a year. So in five years, they're losing nearly 8% on their margins. Now, 
That's a straw man, of course. No one who starts a risk-based contract would perform no care management. Everyone's going to do at least the minimum high-risk care management for the top 5%. So we built that actually into the model, and that's the middle line you're looking at. It assumes they're able to bend the cost for the highest risk patient group, but they're still losing money over the life of the contract. They ask why. Let me give you the critical point. Every year, remember what I told you? Nearly a fifth of those rising risk patients move into the highest risk category. So even though they did reduce costs for the highest risk, they're being overwhelmed by the rising risk patients who get sicker and move into that high risk category. In other words, even if you at Alameda become best in class at managing your high cost patients, that alone will not be enough to ensure financial sustainability under risk contracts or population health. So we went a step further, ran the numbers for you for a third scenario. That's the top line. And this time, this group, this facility, provides both high-risk and rising-risk care management. They do bend the cost curve for both groups. And more importantly, they stem the flow of the rising risk going up into the high-risk group. Previously, 18% of rising risk moved into high-risk each year for them. That's now down to 12%. And that is what makes the economics work. With both high-risk and rising-risk care management, this contract sees fairly consistent margins of somewhere between 3 and 4%. Three, I think, very important conclusions from this graphic. The first is, in order to succeed under the economics of risk-based contracting, simply doing a better job managing the costs of caring for your sickest patients, that's going to be insufficient. Long-term success under risk contract requires that you also focus on the rising risk and you make a meaningful change in the percentage of them who move into the high-risk category every year. So that's number one. Number two, you don't have to save the world and solve every problem in six months. Success under risk contracting, even if it's full-risk capitation, does not require preventing every hospitalization or every ED visit or even every new instance of chronic disease. Instead, and this is the good news, this is all about, in terms of success, reducing, not eliminating those things. Finding the handful of patients where an investment in more intensive care management will have a real impact and then delivering it. Third major point, we need to maintain the low-risk patients in your panel, and ideally you grow that population over time. I mean, the PMPMs from managing the healthy population are really what's going to drive the top-line revenue in the model, and therefore that's going to fund all the other care management investments. So let me just underscore that this is not a theoretical model. From our investigations of the best-performing population management organizations, what I'm sharing with you right here is exactly what they do. Let me conclude this section by kind of double-clicking on those three populations. Illustrated, the three groups of patients and a mapping to the core imperatives. And if we had time, we'd review every single one of these. So top right bracket, our top performers have built a core population health infrastructure that spans all their patients. After that, they stratify their patient population into smaller, more manageable categories corresponding to brackets two, three, and four. Now, this is really important. The top performers develop fundamentally different care models for each patient group. 
connecting high-risk patients with a care team that can help shift high-cost utilization to low-cost management. That goes well beyond having them in a medical home, and it includes strategies like assigning a dedicated care manager with the objective of proactively working with these patients through probably a series of high-frequency touch points, managing rising-risk patients in the medical home to avoid unnecessary higher-cost spending, and developing scalable ways of working with these patients so that the care management becomes highly economical. And then reinforcing low-risk patient access to keep patients healthy and connected to you. The keys here, delivering a high level of patient satisfaction through convenient access to the services that they really do need most. So I think this is useful for this high level thinking through. If I could summarize for you what effective population health managers do really, really well, it's this graphic. They're not throwing millions and millions of dollars of new IT labor and infrastructure investments into a single model that does everything for everybody. I wish it was that simple, but they're not. They are highly targeted in their approach to care management, and they build a very efficient, lean-up infrastructure for patient care. So if I had all day, I would spend the rest of the time unpacking it for you, and I would get very granular. These are the 12 distinct attributes that set high-performing population health managers apart and allow them to successfully contract for risk-based payment, whether it's with the government, whether it's with the state, whatever. And maybe I'll come back at some point and we'll do another webinar and we'll get into the areas that we don't have time for today. But let's start with the foundation of the population health enterprise because Del Vecchio and I both thought this is the most important thing that, or things, plural, that you and the board and he can do for the organization, and that is to set up a defined population health strategy and then prioritize for your teams a disciplined investment plan. So this next section will bring some discipline and rigor to a conversation that oftentimes, to me, seems to be going in a million directions at once. I, I'll tell you, I spoke with countless executives personally responsible for care transformation, and their frustration was palpable. I mean, they were being asked to tackle too many different priorities all at once. Any decent, innovative idea, often whether or not it's related to population health management at all, got put on their plate to manage. That's number one. Second, everyone who has ever wanted a piece of hardware or software has their hand up and an argument why their technology is the most critical one and it's got to be the next one you purchase. Dr. Cax, before Third, you... Excuse me. Yes. Before you move on to the roadmap and the next thing that you want the board to do, I would really appreciate um, you allowing the board to ask questions on what you have covered thus far. Absolutely. Be delighted. Thank you. So, board, do you have some questions? No. That you, Thank you all. Do you have some questions you'd like to, to ask? Okay. So, um, we're a hospital network. We do have some primary care clinics. but. I would like to know where our patients are getting their primary care, what percentage are getting them from us versus all of the other clinics and, and private doctors. Because it seems to me capturing that low-risk population and, and keeping them loyal, um, I mean, who are our low-risk patients that come to Highland other than women giving birth who are relatively healthy? And so I, I can't quite wrap my head around how we capture that, that very important healthy population and keep them loyal. Uh, David, yeah, back here, do you want to approach absolutely. that with any of the data that you have? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, so actually, I want to uh, underscore two things. So, we, you're right. We have um, uh, primarily, uh, although in addition of a few others, four wellness centers uh, that are federally qualified health centers. Um, uh, we are part of now sort of a, a primary care delivery network that includes the CHCN. So, there are a lot of the FQHCs, but we have a significant portion of people who come to us for primary care that are. Uh, they do cover the um, span of uh, of health risk. Uh, so uh, you, we have people who are, you know, without any chronic conditions. We have people who have one chronic condition, but it's well managed. So remember, well, low risk doesn't mean that you don't have a chronic condition. It means that you may have one that's easily managed and that you are managed. Um, we not we don't just deal with the chronic conditions also, but we look at socioeconomic circumstances. So people experiencing homelessness. Obviously, we have a lot of people who we serve who are experiencing homelessness, but it's actually not a majority of the population we serve. You know, we have a lot of people who experience substance abuse and behavioral health challenges, but again, not a majority of the population we serve. So we do, in fact, have people who cover the gamut. Part of what I'll be going through, or I may touch on, I believe, uh, but part of our strategic planning effort now is to be able to risk stratify our patient population, applying an approach that actually the Department of uh, Public Health, I believe, here in the county has already sort of defined those segmentations, low risk, rising risk, and high risk. And so we want to apply that algorithm to define the population. That may be applied to a defined group of people, which may be people who are both health pack and people who are, um, so that's sort of remaining uninsured, but in a coverage program, and the people who are in the alliance or for Medi-Cal. So we want to say, who are the people who are assigned to us, who we take care of, uh, um, for both their primary care and their acute care, and, and then stratify them based off of risk. There is also a separate pool of individuals uh, who won't uh, fall into there, and those are people who go to the other FQHCs for which we provide specialty care, acute hospitalizations, and others. We're, we, When we get to how we do risk-based capitation, we wouldn't be at total risk for uh, and utilization of that population. We may come up with an arrangement and we're talking about ideas where we may share that risk with them. Uh, but for those are two different sort of groups of individuals. And those individuals also could be people who are you know, largely okay. They may have a, a chronic condition or they may have acute issue that's not necessarily makes them a high risk or a moderate Can risk. Can I just ask a question on that? Sure. So if I'm a patient at one of those clinics, at, mm -hmm. at La Clinica, uh -huh. um, and, so, and they're keeping me healthy because I'm low risk, they're receiving the, the, if you will, the financial benefit of that. And then if I have an incident or, or, or whatever, a situation where I need to come to AS, we're, is, it, is it just fee-for-service, or are you saying that we will share in the, the benefit of them being healthy because we're providing service to them? So it could vary. In the current world, it, it, the way that the alliance is, or the not the alliance, uh, let's say La Clinica, for example, is capitated for a patient because they are capitated. We are not currently. Uh, for for Medi-Cal. Uh, they have certain things that are carved into their contract and certain things that are carved out. Hospitalizations is carved out, so that means that the risk stays with the insurance uh, company or health plan, which is the alliance. So whenever a, their patients need hospitalization, the alliance pays the bill. Uh, actually, I want to be sure that's the case. That they're, they're carved out for hospitalization, which means that they pay the bill. They are capitated, though, for maintaining their primary health. And it doesn't mean that they're always well. They, too, have a uh, band of people who 
uh, stratify or, or cover that whole risk continuum. Uh, but as they need hospitalizations, as they need specialty services, uh, some of that they are at risk for, meaning they are paid to manage that, and others they are not. It's it relying for that could change. We could partner with them and say, we want to. Uh, share that portion of the risk for you so that we're responsible for it, which would mean then in that case, we're responsible for making sure that acute uh, capacity is available for them and we would be on the hook if, say, one of their patients then went out of that network, if they went to another provider for acute services for which we're responsible for. Does that make sense? Right now we're not. It's a health plan. Um, so I, I'm still trying to understand the concept of this as opposed to the the, the detail details, that sure. you, um, so are, are you taking our exist, and perhaps it's my own misconception of what a health, you, you know, a safety net system is, but so are you taking our existing group of patients that we currently serve and breaking them into this triangle category of low, medium, and high risk versus looking for patients that are outside our services now and bringing them into the low risk because my my perception and it it could be wrong my perception is that the bulk of the patients that we're serving are in the rising risk and high risk so those two seem to me to be distinctively different approaches sure so uh, the answer is mostly the first part. We're taking the group of patients, we would be taking the group of patients for whom we, prim we serve right now uh, and those who are uh, assigned to us uh, as well as those outside, but we treat them, meaning they're assigned to someone else, uh, but, but they handle sort of details differently. But we're taking all the patients who we currently serve and saying, let's design a purposeful program that looks, like, that looks at managing their health as well as the cost of their care and their utilization. So, so yeah, it would be, it would be, that would be the fundamental purpose of what we're doing. What you'll hear a little bit later is that we're doing some of this already. In fact, right now we're currently capitated with the county for health pack. So those, that, the third of the health pack lives that are assigned to us, two thirds to um, uh, the CHCNs, we are capitated for them. So one flat per member per month fee and whatever their utilization is, we're on the hook for it. Uh, we're saying let's make sure we have a program designed to look at all those individuals very purposefully to say, yes, many of them are high risk, many of them are rising risk. What is our infrastructure, our care delivery system to make sure that we're managing them and their, um, their health care in a very methodical, thoughtful way. So, so Joe Vecchio, yes. would that be the pyramid, say that, that population that you just that we're capitated for, would that population look like? So we don't know, to be perfectly honest. I think the, the prevailing uh, opinion is exactly what you just said, and it may well be right. That, and that's what David was saying, that when you look specifically at us, part of, uh, it may well be that we are more heavily tilted in the top two categories. So, so rather than it being 5% high risk, we may be closer to 9 or 10% when we look at um, applying an algorithm. When we look at rising risk, we may be closer to 40 or 50%. Low risk may be slightly lower, so it may be 50 or maybe 45 or something like that. But we have to actually apply that. Obviously, it's all point in time and it can move, but we apply that and we'll have a better sense of what it is. I think Right now, we manage or we provide a lot of resources to, and one of the examples you'll hear, to our high-risk population. 
And part of the reason the pyramid might be that way is that we don't pay purposeful attention to the low-risk population, and that's what he was saying, that we tend to lose uh, low-risk people because we try to apply a bureaucratic approach to how we provide care to them. So there's some specific techniques around how you keep the low-risk population engaged, keep them healthy, and keep them loyal to your system as a place to get care when they need the care, because usually their care needs are less uh, uh, impactful as the others. Yeah, see, I can, I, I, it's very easy for me to see how, how this pyramid is the way in which, you know, to manage the care. I, I get that. Um, so what I'm hearing you tell me, mm -hmm. um, when I asked you what time it was, what I hear you telling me is that we take our existing population that we serve. Yes. And we break them into this and pay attention to the low risk, as opposed to what conversations I was privy to a few years ago, is that we were out trying to sell and bring other people into our system, and that seemed to me to be a much more challenging effort than looking at our existing people Correct. and ad addressing. So Correct. I'm hearing you say we're looking at our own population first and not going out trying to steal patients from Kaiser and every other place to bring them in. Correct. Let me let okay. me caveat that to say that it doesn't mean that, remember, our population is people who are getting, for the most part, people who are covered through the county or through the alliance. Right. We may actually be able to, because the alliance population continues to grow, as we develop a program and we, get, we have strong uh, performance around this, we may be able to get more of those patients um, into our system. We may well even get other people who are currently in the safety net but getting care elsewhere into our system. So there isn't an exclusion to saying, obviously, our door is closed. We're only taking care of people who we currently take care of. We will take care of everyone, but we will design a specific program that starts at its basis for the individuals whom we currently serve and trying to manage uh, uh, and coordinate their care and their care utilization, as well as then they spend in a Correct. way that, that addresses AAA. Penny, do you yeah. add a question? Yeah, I, I think uh, that's exactly what I gleaned from David's talk, too, is that you know, it's complete redesign, so when we look at it through the framework of what we do right now, it seems like, oh my gosh, like those are the um, high-risk high populations that suck up so much of our time and uh, human and uh, other material capacity, but the whole purpose of the redesigning and the devil is in those, you know, the last slide of the previous one where it talks about like seven, six, seven, eight, and nine, are those partnerships that we make, like as Covered California is happening and more people are getting. So that the primary care, the ambulatory systems, like really shoring those up because then that is where we need to keep people healthy and all these extra partnerships that have to be invested in right now so that the folks who manage the low-risk population, we have very, very tight partnerships with them to do that. So. So I get it uh, when it comes to the, the patients where we control the whole pyramid with that one-third of the alliance patients. Um, I, I'd be curious to, to, to know what percentage of our patient population is that group where we hold the whole pyramid. And I don't need it right now. Um, so I get this model, and I get what our, our, um, our, our guest is saying, you know, and I, you know, so I want to hear more about how we, we serve that whole pyramid. That's great. Yeah. I still believe that 
outside of that pyramid, there's this huge group where we're getting just the high risk or the rising risk. Mm -hmm. And maybe at rising risk, we make them loyal by managing them well. But I, I still see that as a huge hole for us because we're the safety net hospital. So uh, let me just, I, I don't know the answer to that, and I know you don't need it now, which is great, because I don't know it. Uh, but but let me tell <laughs> you uh, uh, sort of a, a bit of clarity. So there, when we talk about this population and what we'll be working on, um, there will be, as you said, I don't know how big the group is, but there will be people outside of this, this group for which we will provide care. So people who are either capitated somewhere else or they're not capitated anywhere else. Their, their expense lives with the health plan or, you know, they are undocumented and they don't have insurance coverage. Um, obviously, our mission, we're going to continue to take care of that population. That population and, and the work that we do in this area that's about managing uh, this other group that's inside the triangle will inure to that population as well because we want to make sure providing same standard of care to anybody irrespective of their ability to pay. Uh, but from a perspective of our risk profile, when we're looking at how we proceed, we are, we're, we're going to be doing different sort of things around a care management infrastructure and the types of things that we track for the people within that uh, population or within that triangle, meanwhile trying to work on efforts for those people outside who aren't assigned somewhere to get into the triangle. So there'll always be sort of a, you know, a, uh, membrane, a porous membrane of people coming hopefully in and not out. What I think we're talking about then here this morning is a future state, right? That a, what the board needs to know as we start to consider moving more and more into a capitation world, right? Yes. I mean, we already yes. are partly there, but also we need to understand what our journey or what our risks are and what some of the strategies would probably Absolutely. Be What's, what are the kind of priorities we look at now? Because, you know, right now in capitated, some of the same metrics we look at around volume and utilization and other things that tie to our budget won't necessarily be the same sort of imperatives going forward. We won't be looking at what the... Um, what the uh, census is or what our capacity is per se, we'll be looking at for this group of people for which we're capitated now, what is their utilization? How many of them uh, in our low risk population are being engaged? What's their health status? The high risk population, how are we, you know, if there are people who have had 12 hospitalizations in a, in a year prior to being in this program that we're designing, are that is that down? Are they, they may be getting more care quite honestly, and it actually may be uh, costlier care in some instances, but is it managed? Is it that they are being engaged in and not showing up in the ED avoidably and being admitted to the hospital? They may have a, a case manager assigned specifically to them, working with them, and, we, and we're moving their health status to a better place uh, versus, per se, at, you know, how, how our ED, we'll be looking at things like productivity and throughput and things like that, but we'll have to now have an infrastructure that looks at all these other indicators of health of a population, a defined population, and how we're performing with managing their health and managing their costs. Maria, do you have, uh, I was going to move on. I think is making sure we're looking at upstream social determinants of health innovations. Yes. And um, we'll talk about that later, but I, I, I feel like we don't want to just narrow our focus on what's happening within our four walls or the walls of our institutions. Um, it's really important for us to get very creative, and I'd be happy to share about the pay for success on asthma, but that is the other opportunity, and I, I know that we're not talking about that today. And, and we will. I appreciate that. Good. Um, 
Go ahead. Totally different subject. I mean, same subject, but earlier, um, David, you had uh, talked about the obstacles uh, in, in our in the culture, and so I am curious where our providers, uh, what the op what's what's the obstacle in their thinking that we're going to have to deal with internally? It just touch on that at some point, because when you said it earlier, I thought, yeah, I mean, to me, I've I've, I've been more of a healthcare advocate on the outside. I think like Maria, I've I've done a lot of work around population health in communities. And so for me, it's a no-brainer that we want people to be healthy and stay out of the hospital. But maybe for a provider, they, they look at things differently. And, and I'm curious what those obstacles are that, that, that people have run into at some point, if we can touch on that. Yeah. Could, Del Vecchio, could uh, this, Joe's questions, I don't mean to diminish sure. it in any way. It's a good one. But Dr. Katz is, is only here for mm -hmm. a bit. So if you don't mind, if you'll I'll remember that yep. question, because I'm also going to ask you later about whether or not the you have looked at our own population and plugged it into the strategic plan. You don't have to answer that question now, but it will be one. Thank you, Dr. Katz, for the, for the, for the time that the break here. So you're back on. You're back on, sir. First of all, uh, don't thank me. That was a very stimulating, germane, important discussion. It only makes me wish I had more time with you. I'm, my time's actually up, but I'm going to go over just a minute or two with your permission um, to close out what I would have talked about. But um, Del Vecchio gave me till one o'clock my time, which I guess is, what are you, 10 o'clock your time? Something like that. And uh, that's fine. There's so much more to share. And I found that discussion tremendously useful in terms of context. I know you all well. I know your population well. I know your area. Half my family live out in California. So um, that wasn't new to me, but the questions were really important. And it indicates to me how thoughtful and uh, educated the board is, and that's really nice from an outsider's perspective to sort of hear what you were asking. They were absolutely questions. Um, what I will do is answer a couple of the ones that I heard you discussing, and I didn't want to interrupt just because uh, I wanted to hear Del Vecchio's responses. And he articulated things uh, very much the way I would, so I support his answers to you up to this point. What I would note for the gentleman that was appropriately, I think, skeptical about the pyramid scheme, or at least questioning, and how it might apply to your patient population. It is without question true that you're seeing many, if not all, of the high-risk patients three times a year, 10 times a year in the hospital, et cetera. Don't let that confuse you, though, with the notion that, oh, well, that must mean we have no low-risk patients. You probably have many, many low-risk patients that aren't right now being seen or aren't being seen regularly. And when they're part of a capitated contract, whether it's, you know, Medi-Cal or whether it's some other particular contract you elect to take on, those are folks with whom you want to engage. You want them engaged with you. You want yourselves engaged with them. But don't be so skeptical as to question whether they exist. They're out there. They're part of your capitated contract. You don't create a contract and say, by the way, we don't want any of the low risk. They're there. They're part of the you know, fees that you can expect. And the question is, how do you engage them? How do you make sure they continue to be part of your population and don't move into some other risk group like the rising risk? So that's number one. Number two, 
I loved the fact that somebody spoke up. I guess it was the woman who was speaking about innovation. And again, if I had another few hours or a few days with you, we get into that. But being innovative is absolutely critical. And it answers another board member's comment about are these just the patients that are within our current, you know, umbrella, or are we going to do what we were talking about a few years ago? And the notion of if you figure out some of this correctly, as others have done, others that are safety net hospitals, I assure you, um, and you figure out how to manage a real difficult population well, you can then go out there. You'll have the infrastructure, you'll have the experience, and you may want to say, hey, we're making money on this group for the first time we've ever seen in recent decades anyway. Why don't we sell what we're able to do to some other, uh, you know, population such that we can take on new patients? Again, that's not what you're going to do first off, but that may be what you do second off or third off. And I think Delvecchio was alluding to that. And we don't have a lot of time to, you know, get into that today. But don't, don't um, ignore the notion anyway that there aren't simply challenges. There are some opportunities out there and really good opportunities. It's not just Kaiser that can figure out how to do this well. So I'll just add that to the conversations because it was a great conversation. The um, very last question may be related to what I was going to show you here, which is the concept uh, of, oh gosh, if I'm going to be a population health manager, I must do all of these things. And I won't read them to you, but this is what a lot of folks, a lot of executives, a lot of boards were worried. They were very frustrated when they talked to us that this is what we're going to have to do. Um, the reality is none of these things, none of them are true of the best in class population health managers. So I just wanted to kind of finish up with that. Um, the approach that they take is, is quite different. Um, they have a very common theme of focus, of repurposing assets before purchasing anything at all, and taking a hard line on a lean approach to investment. So just again, as a, as a kind of summary example, because I'm already realizing you probably have other things on your agenda, but the best-in-class organizations do start with a clearly defined, concrete set of what I call care management objectives. And I will tell you, if any of you on the board or, or anybody else went out and asked 10 different members of teams throughout the facility or the system how to define care management, I would wonder how many would get 10 different answers. I've listed for you a couple of common answers, everything from controlling diabetes to wellness in the community, right? Well, that's part of the problem. It's a big part of the problem lack of clarity around what population management means in specific terms. It leads your teams, maybe the board, to conclude that it means everything. It doesn't. You need the entire organization on the same page as to your goals and objectives for population health management. And what I was going to do, if I have a few minutes, maybe I can go over a little bit more. What you want to do is you, you can do that, and you do it in two ways. You identify a concrete set of objectives as executives and as the board, and then you communicate those objectives throughout the Alameda system. And I'll just give you perhaps this uh, one example, if, if you grant me a few extra minutes. Um, healthcare Partners happens to be 
one of the nation's leading population health managers. And they're not that far away. They're on your side of the, you know, country there. Um, care management is much more than a mission statement. And that's really one of the important points I want to make today. They defined it in quite concrete terms. You don't have to pick the same terms, by the way. But the three goals that they use to determine care management objectives are improve patient self-management, improve medication management, and reduce the cost of care. An example, as you can see there, is reducing admissions. That is it for them. Not solving every problem, not a laundry list of competing priorities. It's a very short list with measurable metrics. And I can promise you, if you ask anyone at that organization, because I've been out there and tried this out myself, if you ask any of them to define care, care management, they can tell you it's about those three things. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting that Alameda or anybody simply take health partners three objectives and build care management systems around them. Those are wonderful and successful goals for them. What you all need to do on the board, you need to build customized goals for Alameda, for your own organization. Getting the right goals, it's a challenging task, and it's really easy to get it wrong. So I just wanted to share with you my last graphic, a couple of things you might want to consider as you build out your own list. First of all, you'll want to avoid lofty aspirational goals. This is not about rewriting Alameda's mission statement. These have to be operational. They have to be attainable. They should be clearly defined. They should be specific to you. And I think most important, they should be measurable. If you're familiar with the uh, SMART acronym for goals, that's what I'm talking about. The acronym is S-M-A-R-T, specific, measurable, actionable, relevant, and time-bound. So it's kind of a cool acronym there. Now, I know it may seem somewhat basic, but I have to tell you, it was stunning to me and my research teams that there are extraordinarily few organizations that have done this. And I'm talking everything from safety net hospitals to super academic programs to great community hospitals. Very few have done this well. So define population management for Alameda in specific measurable terms around which your entire organization can align. The bottom line is I recommend that every one of you take this back to the organization, make it immediate priority, and from there, there are some next steps. But as I promised Del Vecchio, one of the things that's horrific about being second, third, fourth, or tenth on an agenda list is that the first person gets you way off schedule. And I promised I would not, as much as I would love to, you're a, a very bright group, and I don't say that in any sense gratuitously or in any sense uh, to patronize you, but listening to the questions that you raise and listening to the responses uh, just motivates me to be quite excited about working with you all. I mean, it's a very interesting situation. It's challenging. It's obviously been going on for years, but please know that despite my limited time this morning, I stand ready personally to assist in any way, whether it's another webinar to get further into what we started today, whether it's to help out strategically in some way. Ishwari knows we're available. Del Vecchio, you know I'm available, and I will 
go back, if I have a second, to the very first graphic for one reason. At the very bottom of this graphic, if I did it correctly, I put in my private email address. None of my executive assistants have access to that for very specific reasons of people want to communicate with me financial data. Uh, they don't want even other people at the advisory board to know. That is fine. If something comes to me at this email address, I'm the only one that has the password, and I wouldn't share it with anybody even at the advisory board without your permission. So please feel free to follow up with me after today. Um, you can hold me accountable because I've just told you I'm the only one that gets those emails, and if there's something I don't know that you want, and that's often the case because I don't know lots of things, um, I will ask your permission to triage it to one of my expert colleagues or something like that. But Del Vecchio, with, um, with sort of humble acceptance of my limited time and a reminder to myself of my promise to you, I'll let you go on to your next uh, agenda item because I know you guys are packed full for the entire day. And just thank you again for including me for any amount of time in your meetings. I mean, it's, it's an honor, and I really never forget that is a privilege. For my 20 years I've been with the advisory board, I never forget that when someone invites me in to visit, to share some data, whatever it is, it's, it's my privilege to be with you all, so thank you. Great. Thank you so much, David. Uh, do, uh, I guess I should check before, before we sign off with you, though. Uh, trustees, are there any uh, follow, uh, remaining questions for David particularly? David, thank you again. I, I do want to share the, uh, your, your regrets that you couldn't be here in person. That was more of a timing sort of uh, thing for us, uh, but uh, I think this has worked well, and you imparted a lot of good information for us to continue throughout the it rest was of the certainly day. A, you're very kind with your feedback. It was certainly the beginning, and Delvac, I'll leave it to you to explain to the board some of the other things we were going to get into, but you know what? I think you and I both feel like the discussion was absolutely worthwhile having and taking away from my time to simply present didactically. I think that was an excellent, um, you know, way to use the time. And I just you all. But Great. with that, um, thank you again. And I hope folks will be in touch. Thank you, David. Take care. Bye bye. You too. Just that was an amazing um, summary of population health. It was really helpful. Something that we need to come back to, maybe we can ask him this later, mm -hmm. um, happens to have featured healthcare partners. And there are some really interesting dynamics there. Mm -hmm. um, I know because my brother's a physician with them, but uh, I'd like to know if there are unintended consequences to some of the financial modeling that uh, healthcare partners has, has uh, adopted. If he has, their permission to look at that data, I think it's well worth our understanding of what some of those unintended consequences may be. Um, and later I think I'll share with you more details about that. But uh, I'm concerned that that might be the featured uh, practice that he brought to our attention, mm -hmm. and we should be cautious about right. that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Maria. I, I... Uh, would love to hear that, and I'd be glad to get it. Uh, he, he mentioned them, and they were on that slide with all the organizations. I'd, I'd point out, and I think many of you probably uh, immediately saw that uh, um, Denver Health, uh, which is one of our sister organizations in Denver, Colorado, uh, uh, was a big part of this. And the advisor board actually, I think I brought it. 
Um, the playbook for population health was so a really useful tool that kind of walks you through in more detail all the things you shared here as well as things in the deck that you have that we didn't go through today. Um, so we're, we're using it uh, uh, very uh, closely within the organization to, to inform what we're doing along with some other complementary tools. Uh, uh, but, you know, and so we're not necessarily, as you said, following one model, uh, uh, but we're looking at the examples and it points out examples from um, uh, Denver Health in here, uh, Montefiore Medical Center, which is a teaching uh, academic medical center, but serves a huge uh, uh, safety net population as well, uh, De Detroit Medical Center and a few others. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, so we, uh, with the agenda, we had uh, some time for Q&A. Actually, uh, I appreciate them being so uh, tightly controlled. We actually had a little bit more time. It was his presentation. I want to make sure you had time for Q&A. So we started some of that. There were a few that I noted we could I want to get a gut check from uh, from you in particular, uh, Michelle. We could start to uh, respond to some of those now, or we could tab table them, and we could do our um, our activity, which I thought would be very good, uh, given that we just went through a, a tele presentation, if you will, uh, to kind of keep the energy in the room uh, before our eleven o'clock uh, presentation from CAPH. So we have about forty five minutes. Do we want to? We, we talked about roughly a half hour for the activity. We could use more of it and do 45 minutes, or we could. The activity itself is um, probably, I, I would think we need to follow up on some of this first. Okay. And then let, let's do the activity later. Because okay. this is fresh in our mind, and mm -hmm. the activity is really, I don't want to say it's a throwaway, but certainly it, it doesn't move the agenda. That's right. For it. And we discussed that. So if I may, actually, I, I wanted to respond to Joe's and then turn it to you, uh, Trustee Zorthian, because I think you can complement it, and then we can talk about some of the other uh, questions that I noted, too. So, so, Joe, if I recall, your question was, like, what sort of challenges with our uh, providers face in sort of this big transition or this type of a shift? Uh, I point out, too, and then, obviously, I'm not a provider, so I'd love uh, Dr. Zorthian to, to um, uh, either uh, uh, Add to this, or or you know, counter it if you if you disagree. But um, as we've been talking in our in our business unit planning sessions about this, uh, one big thing that came up, and I've seen this in other organizations that I've been in, is in the safety net. Uh, our providers are uh, historically and mission uh, driven, sort of mission aligned to do whatever the patient needs. So if you're a patient and you present before them and you are a patient who uh, has resource constraints, um, we as providers uh, will take care of every need that you have. So you may come to us for a specialty consult, but we notice you haven't had a mammography or some sort of primary care sort of or preventive care thing and we're going to get that for you because we want to make sure you don't miss that. Um, in this world, and in fact it exists today, uh, if we are not, if someone else is um, capitated to do that for a patient, where their assignment and their authority or their um, uh, allocation of resources uh, go matters. Uh, and it matters because uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing to take care of a need for a patient when a patient's in your in your uh, care, uh, but when you do that, you're 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 taking the bandwidth of what the organization can do potentially away from people who you, we are responsible for taking care of, and that then would look reflect poorly on us if we're not able to meet the needs of the people for which we are specifically assigned within the organization. So the important thing that has to happen or one of the big shifts is 
where your health care resources are aligned matters now. If you're not assigned and you don't have resources, then we will take care of you. That's our mission. We'll do that. But if you come to us and say you are a patient in Kaiser's plan or you're a patient in the Alliance's plan, we have to say we were uh, engaged to take care of this for you, and we recommend that you get these other things, but you have to go back to your provider and facilitate that information transfer and the patient getting back to get those services. We don't, what we historically would have did is provide it and then say, oh, we didn't get reimbursed for it. We have supplemental payment that will cover it later. The supplemental payments are going away. Uh, uh, that's moving away so we don't get to come back and recoup costs for services that we provided anymore because people will say, no, we paid X plan or X provider to do that for the patient. You did it. You did it without authorization. They're not going to pay you for it. You shouldn't have done it. So, uh, I, so what would happen in, in, in uh, Los Angeles uh, is um, providers would feel like that was pretty bad. A lot of times, uh, particularly in the uh, academic medical centers, um, uh, providers will feel like maybe there's a variance in the caliber and the engaged providers in the community. So there's this sort of sense of, I need to take care of this patient. And I have the best resources and the best uh, uh, things at my disposal to do that. So, so rather than go through the you know, the, the rigmarole, and it's not well, it's not ill-advised or, or ill-meaning of making sure that this patient gets something and they perhaps wouldn't get it, I'll just go ahead and do it for you. But then it's the commitment of the resources, I would say. Is and it possible? The, sorry. Is it possible that our providers and, and our culture is doing this because they know that our patients aren't going to be able to get an appointment to get that particular it's possible. That's what I mean. It's not ill-meaning. Uh, right, exactly. But, but if we were to provide and make sure that there was access down the road for all patients, then our providers would be less likely to say, oh, well, now I have you in here. I might as well do X, Y, and Z for you, you know, to make sure that any comorbidities are addressed. That's correct. The challenge still uh, uh, is, though, during that sort of transition is the more that you do it because of your lack of trust in the rest of the system, the least likely the rest of the system is ever uh, will ever rise to the occasion of meeting their own sort of challenges because you're covering them all. So we all have to kind of rise to the occasion. We have to know where our, our gaps are, uh, be informed of them, make sure that we're taking care of the patient in the way in which we're, we're uh, uh, required to do and the patient needs, but doing that in a way that makes sure that everybody's uh, carrying their weight. But then, I mean, but the, the opposite of that is to just have a pre-authorization for everything, which is to impact the high risk and high need population more than, and especially our population who is less medically astute perhaps or less knowledgeable about how to, to um, get through the system. Sure. So, and that's a big part of it. There's, there's education that has to occur. It actually doesn't. So, so David was pointing out the prior uh, attempts, the 80s and the 90s at managed care was this heavily pre-authorization for you know anything beyond checking your your pulse, basically. Uh, when you're when you're um, the the efforts around care management now is if you are in the system, and this is why we have to get a uh, a, a re reasonably sized group of people for which we are responsible for everything, this program would say, how are we managing those people first and foremost? And then the other pieces are things for which someone else should be doing the exact same thing. We will be taking care of them and providing those resources in partnership with them, but we are not responsible for managing their care. Uh, so, so we have to make sure that that 
that falls with someone else, as long as they elect, because patients have the ability to choose who provides their care. So can we call them pyramid patients? I don't, I didn't like pyramid scheme or patients. I was like, that was kind of horrible. No, David, I mean, but, like, like, but there are people. I mean, like, I hate to say it, but if we're completely responsible to make sure they're not right. That's right. So within our system, not, not, there so would not be a bunch like, of authorizations yeah, to I mean, do that. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm really getting this now. And, and it matters part of our system. And as you should intervene, tell them, X, your, 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 your health home needs to do this. Like, I, I, I get that. And sometimes because of the exchange and the lack of interoperability between our informations, it may well be that the health home is already doing that for the patient. We just don't know. And the patient may not know, and we assume that they're not, so we then do this stuff ourselves. And so it's not always that it's missing, although that is the case many times. Uh, it's just that we don't always know. And you know, that may exist for a minute. So, so I think that's a big challenge for our providers. Quite honestly, it's a challenge for us too. Um, but I understand as a provider having that obligation to do what's in the best patient's interest in the moment uh, that, that uh, having to now have this particular uh, um, actor uh, come into your decisions about what you do versus what someone else does, uh, particularly in our system where people have made a commitment to taking care of the patient irrespective of where they get their care can be a big challenging. Dr. Zorthy. As you can imagine, I have tons of things to say, but um, what, one of the things this brings to mind is that since I came to Highland in 1982, I have been amazed at the lack of education being given to the physicians about how to do things economically and sensibly and without duplication. And um, so part of, you know, although I understand his thing about not having a very expensive IT to our, our challenges, if we had a record where we could actually tell what went on at La Clinica and, you know, that would be helpful on that level. But I think really a systematic helping the providers feel that it isn't our responsibility, that it will be taken care of elsewhere, that we can um, not order the CTs in a different setting or whatever, is one of is really going to be part of our solution here. We in a really all this thing about the doctors don't don't document right, and so we can't bill for them. And a lot of it's very accusatory, but it is we aren't taking the really system. Isn't it? I think though, like what using the example of health part, what's it called, health partners, or using the examples of these very big like Ruth Health Cooperative or these other Pfizer even is all doctors that are a group practice that is together and committed to their, either they're all insured getting the same risk through the ACE or another plan, and we're a different mix. We have independent as well as employee as well as um, our AHP, so that's kind of one of the biggest challenges, yeah. I think, to your point, Barry. Well, I, you know, when I was an intern, we had a, a, a young woman who rotated to our hospital from Kaiser, from their residency, to do pulmonary. And she was, we were rounding, and she said, oh, this patient is still on IV antibiotics. At Kaiser, they would have made us change him to PO by now because he doesn't have a fever on it. And I, it's really stuck in my head, and I have waited since that day for somebody to tell us, no, you can't have that person on an antibiotic any, IV anymore because it's too expensive. It doesn't happen. So Kaiser gets yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Because they have to get it, otherwise they would not succeed. So it's. <laughs> <laughs> but let's 
Let's be really clear, though, that there are unique aspects of our patient population um, that we do serve right now. And moving to this model, I, I don't disagree with him. I think that those... Um, and I think when you analyze what the costs are to us for the 5%, we'll be stunned at how difficult those patients... The question I have for you is, will our new EDI system give us some better understanding of this coordination of care? Because you're, you're about to tell us more about that anyway. So huh. give us a sneak peek. Do you feel like that's going to help us understand where everybody goes? So uh, yes, in part. Um, the, so to remind everyone, Eddie is the uh, Emergency Department Information Exchange. Uh, it is the collaborative right now that we're doing with uh, Sutter as a start. Sort of reaching out to other partners in the community to try to do this. It is exclusive to the emergency department to say, how can we have an information exchange, a secure information exchange that uh, documents or identifies when patients are um, engaging each of our systems from the emergency room perspective. So patients with polymonic uh, uh, conditions or um, uh, pain uh, needs and other sorts of things that are showing up in each of our EDs. And their experience outside of our system is blind to us. So we don't know if there's been a case manager who has worked with them to do their stuff or what prescriptions they may have been assigned or when they actually showed up in that ED and what happened there. Um, uh, we are now, you know, this type of information exchange will help us uh, to, to see uh, when patients who are either within that pyramid, if I will, or outside are engaging different systems and we can take care of them differently. The corollary to that, though, is within the pyramid. So when you define a population of patients for which you are taking care of the full continuum of their care, part of the infrastructure for doing that is developing a robust system that allows you to, one, you have to be accountable for care that they seek within your system and outside your system. And this is a big component of what we don't do in a fee-for-service role. So right now with the Alliance, we're capitated for like, something around 55 or 56,000 lives, I shouldn't say capitated. We have assigned to us 55 or 56,000 lives. We're, they're assigned to us. That means that we provide the primary care for them. If they get primary care or specialty care or inpatient utilization or post-acute services somewhere else, it doesn't impact us. And we may not even know about it unless they come to us and tell us, oh, you got admitted there, or that place says your patient came to us. But we don't have to track their utilization and, and we don't get the data around it. So usually the way you get data around where somebody went is those places who provided the service send you a bill. They don't send the bill to us. They send it to the Alliance because we're not capitated. Do they give us the yes, We're working together to do that more uh, more routinely now because we need that information in order to look at our population and say not just what they're getting care from us, what we know now, but as we look at trying to create a, a, uh, um, a contract that assumes risk, we need to know how much care they're getting anywhere and factor that into what we think the cost will be to manage their care. So, so we're working with them and partnering with them to, to get that information now. For HealthPAT, we can get that information because they're capitated to us and people have to contact us for authorization. Um, so, so part of this thing, in addition to a system like EDI, is you need the type of infrastructure that is about manage, managing what you want to do. So reducing uh, uh, utilizations, reducing uh, I mean, hospitalizations, reducing costs, and you have to have the infrastructure that allows you to do that. We don't currently have it today. Part of our path to get there would be to secure that. 
whether that's through investment, and, and meaning uh, uh, buy the technology and the capability and then develop it or, or uh, gradually develop that uh, knowledge ourselves. Uh, that's one of the things that when you go through this playbook and if he had gone into greater detail, he would have talked about. When he was talking about a robust IT investment, what he was uh, saying is that a lot of organizations don't always go out, and this goes to our IT strategy, they don't always run out and say, in order to do this, we have to have a fully integrated EHR, uh, and that is going to be the starting point for all of this. A lot of organizations, they were pointing out, actually have multi-systems. They invest in the information exchange, and they make sure that all of that information can come into a warehouse that provides the intelligence to providers at point of care and through the organization, uh, not just within your system, but with your partners, so that you can have all that information retained. That's a challenge, and that's not easy to do, um, but when you weigh trying to do that against the cost of actually getting a fully integrated EHR, that will help you internally, but might not help you externally if you don't have the right linkages. You want to be careful about doing that because the competing priorities may uh, create an economic area for you doing both. And if you want to read at this, their point was a lot of people who are in their group of people who do this didn't start with that or didn't make that a criteria for being able. But, I mean, the uh, county was doing this whole thing about operability. Generally, we are looking at our own IT needs and things, but the county has a bigger plan, right, of, uh, of doing. And how is uh, any progress status on how that is going? Sure, we're partnering with them. So it's. Uh, us, the county, the alliance, and CHCN that are looking at how do we how do we uh, find or, uh, or create and establish a way to share data more interoperatively. Um, it was really connected to the waiver, which you'll hear a little bit more about later, and specifically the whole person care pilot, uh, because the effort was to define a high risk, uh, high cost population uh, for which you know they may have a complex medical condition, a chronic condition, a behavioral health issue, which the if they're severe, severely mentally ill, that um, spend and utilization wouldn't be within the alliance to know it would be within the county. Uh, and then some of the um, encounter data from all of us to say, how can we look at this and see who those high-risk patients are across all of our systems and then design a program to uh, address those care needs, those social service needs, and everything else for the, that population. Uh, we're still continuing on that. We've gotten some traction, but it's, as you might imagine, a really challenging process to try to map all the data. Uh, the work continues on that, but it's really a more concentrated effort uh, designed around the whole, care, whole person care uh, pilot, um, uh, not necessarily the global still agree is a need uh, 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 that this could begin to address but wouldn't fully. A couple of thoughts. I noticed that the next slide that uh, Dr. Katz would have gotten to had we not been so verbose, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, where that the leading um, health uh, leaders, um, top of the list is ensuring data access and sharing. And so right right along these lines. And, and I think what... Um, Dr. Zorthian pointed out is really, you know, about doctors not knowing right. um, is, is, is really telling as well. So I, you know, I always want these retreats not just to be informational, action-oriented. So uh, here's a couple of questions, and like, could we get this back? Like, I would like to know what our losses are uh, for doctors ordering non-authorized procedures for patients that are capitalized, or pardon me, capitated elsewhere. So like, can we... Get a, a, a number or an approximate number on how much is going out the door 
because of very well-intentioned providers ordering things that they can't that we can't get compensated for so are we actually at that point now or is that a scenario that you anticipate we could get into if we had a more of a capitated population correct yeah so so okay. so you're 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 light years ahead uh, uh, but we'll talk when we get to the strategic planning effort we'll tell you so, where we are right now okay but but to that but okay then if we have 55,000 patients right now uh -huh. that we're capitated for. We're not capitated for uh, Oh, that we're not. Oh. They're assigned to us, but in a fee-for-service basis. Okay. Yeah. Providing more expensive care than we need to, but, I, but we aren't doing that particular thing that what about the non-55,000? What about the rest? You're talking, yeah, so, so you, I think what you're asking is, can we get data on the denials for services that we provide to patients who are capitated somewhere else With currently? Denial for reimbursement. That, you, that is right? what you Right, that's what I think you're asking. I, right. I believe that's possible. I mean, I'll have to confirm with David and then with the Alliance, but I think that's data that we could, we could for you. And then can we share that data with our providers in, as part of an education series about the fact that, you know, this patient had, you know, it's capitated elsewhere and, and they had this test or they could get this test ordered or authorized yeah. by their yeah, primary yeah. care doctor. We just don't even know there is such know. a thing. Exactly. Right. So, so yeah. part, of the, part of the transition to this sort of framework and model is exactly that, that we have to create an infrastructure where and obviously, we design the capabilities to do these things, but also that there is robust education about what we're doing, what the targets are, and continuous feedback about what a care model, so the infrastructure includes what the delivery model is. And when, whenever there's deviation from that, we always know there will be some deviation because patients aren't widgets, right? So but at this point, we don't know. We don't, because at, to her point about the, you know, this patient's on IV antibiotics after two or three days, we don't, uh, uh, in many cases, have a rigorously defined care delivery system that would apply to, let's say, the majority of patients so that then when something falls outside of that, we can say, provider, please explain why you're not doing, you know, this standard of practice. And it may well be that that's justified. And we say that makes sense. But you have to have a standard first, and then you allow for the, the, the uh, adjustments either way. But that's, that is designed and uh, informed by the providers who are, you know, looking at current practices and best practice and helping you to figure that out. Uh I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut in, but are you, another no, question? There's just so much. Well, well I, I'm asking you if we could at least start with that bigger number of finding out from the Alliance, you know, like what, 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 for us, just a big number, what are we not getting reimbursed for? Here's what I, I would like you to do, is make certain you're writing these down, yeah. because I'd like to go back to the agenda for today and tell no, you sorry. what, no, 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 what, what, because these questions are absolutely appropriate and and really go, in my view, to driving the strategic plan. Because what we had thought about today for our, for our work is, and I will use that pyramid model, if you will, is Del Vecchio had talked about making certain, and, and because I am probably the least, least knowledgeable about all this health care, and you, you guys help me so much, is, is to build a foundation, and so that's the bigger piece of the of the strategic, I mean, of, of today's agenda, is to build um, a base. So talk a little bit more about about um, what population health care is, what that means, 
um, how we can look at, at those issues. Then the other thing, because I think we ought to be action-oriented, uh, to your point, Joe, is that we also needed to know, is are, are there pieces of legislation that a board ought to be engaged in that can, in fact, help us get to our to our objective, which is how this pyramid is now is now raising up as we talk about the day. And what you're going to find on the agenda is there's going to be time to talk about uh, Del Vecchio's going to invest in the progress of the strategic plan. And I want to direct yourself to the questions on the board up here. Because if you look at number two, are there specific items you'd like to see when we return so that you can endorse the tr strategic plan? From my perspective, and I don't want to get into the plan, but I'm going to give you an example of what I think you ought to be, when you're talking today and hearing this, the questions you need to be asking about that strategic plan is, what is the data that you use to drive your decisions? Are they just information from the doctors as it got, or do you know what um, the data is? And then I will for me, later on, I'm going to, I started writing data questions down, and I'm going to ask very specifically, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Because a lot of that will, in fact, drive the direction of the organization. So as you hear Del Vecchio, and then we're going to go into some legislation, be sure and write your questions down, because they will, in fact, drive this afternoon conversation and tomorrow's conversation about Del Vecchio's um, performance as a CEO and what we're expecting to do, which is a little more private, but you have the bigger issue here. Right. So that's kind of how this structure ought to work today. Agreed. Okay? Yeah. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, so perhaps... Um, uh, Can I give my one last little hokey idea? Of <laughs> so once we get to capitation, can we have our patients coded in a way that's easy for our providers and our nurses and our staff to know, you know, this person needs an intervention and we better order them every test because they're moving to high risk and they're one of ours versus you better check first with their health home. Yeah. Part of building the infrastructure is developing or, or, or securing the ability to actually have all of your patient information um, available to you. And that, in fact, you, you'd be required to do that in order to be successful. So you would have a system that says, you know, here are the recommended screenings for this individual based off of age, sex, risk profile, all these sorts of things, and, and best practice. And some of those are driven by regulatory requirements like HEDIS scores and other sorts of things. So you want to make sure that the person's had their mammography. You want to make sure that they've had their... Um, uh, I don't know, their, their annual physical, you want to make sure that if they're at risk for something that, you know, certain things are happening. But we would have to have a system that feeds in real time, um, not just to our providers, but to our care managers and the individuals responsible for those patients who are assigned to them within the organization. This patient is due for X. You need to proactively reach out to them and say, hi, how are you doing? You know, how, you know, you, you need this. I can help you schedule it and we can get you into the system. So, so part of being able to do this well is having that type of capability uh, um, that we would then execute on in order to achieve the targets. Because when we risk-based contract, the health plan will say to us, here are all the things that we expect you to do as a condition of performance for this particular uh, um, capitated dollar, if you will, for this, for this patient. 
Um, so Sarah Muller's here. Um, I, and she, do you want to do you want to do a five minute break or so? We're still we're doing well time wise. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's take five minutes yeah. and then we'll return to um, to we'll, the session. We'll so, get her loaded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm going to call the meeting back to order. We, we're all present now, uh, and I'm going to welcome uh, Sarah Mueller, and I'm going to have Del Vecchio introduce um, her and explain our next steps. Great. Thank you, mm -hmm. Trustee Lawrence. Uh, so, trustees, I'd like to uh, introduce a, a, a good pal of mine. Uh, Sarah Muller is the uh, Vice President of External Affairs for the California Association of Public Hospitals, or CAPH, of which uh, you all are uh, very familiar. Uh, but just for context, CHPH is a nonprofit trade or association uh, that represents California's 21 public health care systems, of course, including very own Alameda Health System, uh, which serves as the core of the state's health care safety net. Uh, Sarah leads communications and advocacy work and that includes helping advance the organization's policy work and legislative platform and building relationships with key stakeholders at the state and federal level. Prior to joining CAPH, uh, Ms. Muller was the Director of Healthcare Policy and Communi Community Development at Working Partnerships USA, a nonprofit organization in San Jose, where she helped to develop and implement local healthcare, health coverage programs for low-income families, passing a living wage ordinance for 5,000 workers at the San Jose airport, and helped advance multiple local ballot measures to support the county's public hospital system. This is a master's in applied economics and finance, Bachelor's in Global Economics from UC Santa Cruz, and her only flaw in life is she's a UNC, Terry shares this uh, element. Apparently there's no cure for it, uh, but she's a U, they are UNC Chapel Hill fans. We won't hold that against her today. There's appropriate level of Duke blue in her presentation. So uh, Sarah, though, is going to talk to us really to, uh, as Michelle was saying, the continuation of the Building blocks. So David talked macro level, really um, uh, sort of big picture about what's happening in po uh, po population health. Sarah's going to talk uh, a fair amount today about what CAPH as a trade association for us is doing to advance both our healthcare delivery system as well as our financing system, which is quite unique. Uh, she'll talk specifically about um, how that work happens on a legislative and advocacy level and really give you some sense or better grounding on how that work would apply to your role as trustees in our delivery organization as well as, uh, uh, again, subject to agreement here, how we um, pursue the role of population health in our design uh, going forward. And the last thing I would say is um, uh, you may get a sense that um, uh, the 1115 waiver, which we're, we're now in the third iteration, I believe, but um, the new um, Medi-Cal 2020 waiver have effectively been population health programs. And uh, of sorts, safety net organizations, particularly the ones in California with the helpless uh, uh, CAPA have been on the fore of moving delivery to high-quality, high-value uh, services, and this is a continuation of that effort in a very uh, significant way. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. So the first thing I'm going to try and make sure I do is minimize the number of acronyms. So if you catch me, feel free to... <laughs> 
Um, it is hard to do in healthcare, let me say. Um, so what I'd love to do is exactly what Devacchio just described, give a little bit of an overview about who we are in the context uh, of the kind of broader, not just healthcare landscape, but the broader kind of landscape that we're operating in in California. Some of this will not be of any surprise to you. And then really talk about the partnership between CAPH and SNI that we have with our public healthcare system members in a variety of different ways. Um, the 2015 waiver was an excellent example of how that partnership came to fruition. Um, and so I'll kind of talk about that a little bit. And then really moving forward, it sounds like you guys are having a pretty robust discussion about your strategic plan efforts and kind of thoughts that you have about how Alameda Health System really moves forward. And I have a couple kind of key things that we're thinking about in terms of emerging issues as we prepare for not just waiver implementation, but really thinking about 2020. Okay. Davecchio just described our organization, so I won't add too much here. Um, CAPH is very much the trade association side of the house um, that really focuses on the policy and advocacy side of the work that we do on behalf of all of our public health care system members. We have a partner organization or a nonprofit affiliate that's called the Safety Net Institute or SNI. We really operate as really kind of one effective organization, or at least we try to. Um, the, and SNI is particularly focused on the delivery system improvement side of the house. So while CAPH focuses on the policy, finance, and advocacy, SNI is very focused in thinking about um, how policy can actually be implemented in our systems. Is it doable? Is it achievable? And then once programs get off the ground, like the waiver, what type of technical support and assistance can we provide on behalf of our members to support their implementation efforts going forward? So who are we? Um, this looks probably very familiar to, to that of Alameda Health System, but the public health care systems are the 21 publicly owned. I, I'm trying to figure out how not to say county owned since we have boards of trustees, um, but they are different from the district hospitals. Um, but the 21 publicly owned and operated facilities, as well as the five University of California medical centers. They are a small but mighty group. There's about 400 hospitals statewide, but these this group of, of systems provides 40% of the care to the uninsured population in our state, 25% of the care to the Medi-Cal population, including half a million of those that have just signed up since 2014. Um, and they play a number of really important functions in our community. On the outpatient side, in terms of a lot of outpatient care and in, in, in clinic support, um, and a lot of tertiary and specialty care services that you don't find anywhere else. Um, trauma, burn, rehabilitation, uh, skilled nursing. And then we're major trainers of our next generation of doctors, which is also very true here at Alameda Health System as well. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this interesting healthcare landscape. Before we get into the specifics around healthcare, you know, we had been dealing with a pretty significant budget problem both at the state and federal level for a number of years, not to mention the challenges that were going on locally. And particularly over the last 12 months, we've really started to see things stabilize, both at the state and federal level. Having said that, that has not necessarily opened the door for massive new amounts of funding in the healthcare arena. Um, both at the state level, well, particularly at the state level, they are not focused on big new investments in healthcare. They've been really focused this year around housing, continued focus around climate issues, also on water, um, and also poverty issues. And the recent um, expansion, or I should say increase of the state's minimum wage and increased paid, paid family leave is a good example of that. Um, and I think it's really still trying to address some of the, the significant disparities that we're seeing, not only in our populations that we serve, but in the economy overall, that despite the recovery, 
uh, there's still a lot of work to, that we need to do to make sure everyone is benefiting from that recovery. Then things get a little interesting, and that would be on the political side of things. And I understand Ted Cruz and John Kasich have all arrived in Burlingame, so the next <laughs> month in California should be fairly interesting. <laughs> um, on the political front, there's some interesting dynamics going on. First of all, I think Washington will continue to be in a bit of gridlock for quite some time. Um, the only exception to that would be if the new president is a Republican and they hold the Senate and also hold the House. Um, but Assuming that doesn't happen, um, I do anticipate that it will be difficult to get um, a lot moved forward in Congress with a new president. Having said that, I think the Obama administration has tried to do everything they can within their power to move things from an administrative standpoint, and we've really seen that on the regulatory side in healthcare. Everything they can do around waivers and trying to get states to expand Medicaid, but also trying to make some pretty significant improvements in the delivery system and basic standards in Medicaid and Medicare. And we'll talk a little bit about one of the most recent regulations in just a minute. State and local level continues to be, in my opinion, where the innovation is happening, where a lot of the creative problem solving is happening from a healthcare perspective. Even though the governor continues to be focused almost exclusively on the budget and high-speed rail, um, there is still a lot of work happening at the state level, both with Covered California, um, as well as at, around the implementation of this waiver and in other kind of pilot programs of really trying to think about, even though there's no new money, how do we do better with, with what we have? Um, and then we have our elections, both in June and then in November. Um, on the healthcare financing side, I think there's some really interesting dynamics that I just kind of wanted to highlight for all of you, and I think this is, is certainly being felt um, at Alameda Health System um, and throughout the state. And the first is this increasing trend around how our financing is changing. Um, in the notion that all of our payments or a large percentage of our payments are incre increasingly becoming risk-based, both from a financial perspective in terms of how good of a job we do at managing the health of our population, but also outcomes focused. And so our only ability to secure that funding will be based on our ability to demonstrate improvements in health outcomes for the patients that we serve. I think that's challenging as we also think about a growing, an aging population and a population that's still really dealing with chronic disease and, and illness and how we, how we kind of come to grips with that being at risk for, for improving their health, but knowing some of our trends are not, unfortunately, going in that direction. Um, the other interesting dynamic that's happening is kind of waiting to see for what this post-ACA environment really looks like from our systems. A lot of our systems really saw some gains in, in coverage with the Medi-Cal expansion, but it's not yet clear if those gains will be sustained. Will the individuals that have chosen to come to our systems over the last few years stay there, or will they go somewhere else? There certainly has been increased competition in the Medi-Cal program from other providers, so we don't know if what we're experiencing now is the new normal, or if this is a bubble, and the minute, you know, three, four years from now, things could look really different. At the same time, there's also some real cost pressures growing. There's a real trend in trying to think about how we curb healthcare costs overall. Consumers certainly are feeling the pinch in how expensive their healthcare is. And from a provider perspective, we have a lot of growing costs as well, both in terms of labor, 
data infrastructure, electronic health records, new technology that we need to continue to invest in. So trying to figure out how we deal with this increased pressure to reduce costs, yet knowing there's some really important investments that are needed in our system that aren't cheap, and how we, how we kind of deal with that. The last dynamic I'll just mention is I continue to believe that Covered California will lead in California in establishing new provider requirements and plan requirements that will eventually move into the Medi-Cal program. I think we are ahead of the game based on the, the recent waiver negotiations, but I, I continue to try and keep a pulse check on what's going on in Covered California and think if that applies to us, is that good? Is that bad? How do we do? Um, and so the, I, I still think that the, the role that Covered California will continue to play in California, I think, will, will certainly be strong and, and get increasingly um, more powerful over the next couple of years. You mean influence the nation, which you mean, or just? Um, I mean more influence the California's Medi-Cal program. Yeah. Yeah. You certainly can set some trends nation nationally, but I definitely see that happening here. Having said all of that, there's some real strengths that I think of our systems being able to, to leverage and really take advantage of. First is all of the core elements of what we need to be integrated systems we have in place. We have primary care clinics, we have inpatient services, we have specialty care, we have a whole range of things that we, we can be the one-stop shop for our patients. We don't have to go out and find a lot of extra services that we would need to be able to effectively manage the health of our populations. And that is unique for hospital systems. Um, we also have been leaders in a number of different areas for quite some time, both in terms of thinking about medical homes and chronic disease management, particularly with our most vulnerable high-risk populations. Um, in a growing, diverse community, we have experience in language access and cultural competency that we want to continue to leverage. And we have a real track record of doing the best we can with what we have and trying to come up with some innovative solutions. And I think that in an environment where there's no new money for healthcare, um, we can continue to be creative in thinking about some problem solving um, as we move forward. One of the big areas, I think, for also for us in terms of strength is the CAPH board has really embraced the, the transformations that are happening around us um, as really the path forward. If payment is moving to be incentive and risk-based, how do we excel in this rather than fight against it? How do we embrace it? How do we figure out how to make it work for us? How do we use it to our strength um, and, and help us make the improvements that we need to our, in, in our systems? The 2015 waiver is a really good example of that work. You probably know this, um, but it's hard for me not to talk about strengths without highlighting a little bit of what Alameda has, um, Alameda Health System has accomplished just in the last few years. And these are some of the big takeaways from their prior pay for performance program known as the DISTRIP um, in terms of expanding capacity both in primary care and in the specialty care setting. Um, launching or expanding their work in the Hope Center really focused on um, individuals with, um, that are high risk and high utilizing populations and having some health improvements there. Coinciding a lot of that work with their 10-bed respite um, program for homeless men. And then some of their work around improving inpatient hospital safety cutting down on central line associated bloodstream infections as well as sepsis mortality. Having said all of those wonderful things, there are some real challenges that our systems are grappling with, and I heard Del Vecchio talking a little bit about the first one when I walked in, which is IT systems and data infrastructure. Um, even though we have been 
uh, have limited resources. I think this is probably an area where we haven't invested the way that we probably need to to effectively manage the health of our populations. It's hard to improve health outcomes if you don't know when the last time they came to that clinic was or what medications they're on and can access that information easily. Even though we have all of the infrastructure in place to be integrated systems of care, achieving that coordination system-wide is still something that our members are very much working towards and, and trying to get better at, but is still certainly a challenge. As we think about becoming or being increasingly providers of choice, that will in part very much depend on how good of a job we do at making sure our patients can get appointments when they need to and their experience in our system is a good one. They want to come back. Um, and that also ties into kind of how we transition of being a provider of last resort, that this is where you go when you're in the car accident, to being this is where I want to go to deliver my baby. Um, and there's work that I think we need to do to demonstrate that value and that expertise. And lastly, I think our, all of our systems often are big institutions, so thinking about how they can make changes and move things effectively through their organization takes time. Um, and agility is sometimes one that, that we wish we had a little bit more of, but aren't always as flexible as we would like to be. So let's talk a little bit about kind of our partnership, um, the partnership that we have with our membership. And I think of this very much as a two-way directional um, direction. Um, in order for us to be good at our jobs, we absolutely need and rely on the expertise and the input of our membership. Um, and yet, I know they need us to be able to be effective advocates on their behalf, working closely with them and with all of you to make sure that the good ideas and the good work that's going can continue and, and we can expand on that. Our goal all along is to think about how we can best position our systems to succeed and fulfill their mission and expand their care and provide high quality care in their local communities. We tend to do this really in four different focus areas. Policy development, advocacy, financing, and programmatic support. And a lot of our work really kind of falls into these. I'll talk a little bit about what each of these. From a policy perspective, no surprise to any of you, it's really thinking about how we develop and leverage strategic opportunities, how we can come up with some creative ideas working closely with our membership as we take a look at the external landscape and say, where can we fit in? What new policies can we come up with? Um, how do we prevent something bad from getting implemented and what those ramifications could have on our membership um, to really make sure that they can excel in the work that they're doing and the systems that they operate. A couple of examples of really what this looks like. Uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, we were really involved in the creation of the two-plan model. That was the birth of Alameda Alliance um, and many of the other local plans. The whole idea around this was to think about how you create locally-based plans that have a mission and a goal of serving safety net populations, particularly those in the Medi-Cal program, and are working very closely with the core safety net providers in their community, the healthcare systems, the community clinics, and so forth. We were also very recently involved in the Medi-Cal expansion and the transition effort that happened from the earlier coverage program called the Low-Income Health Program to make sure that if individuals had signed up through the Low-Income Health Program, um, and we're getting their care at Alameda Health System, that once Medi-Cal expansion happened, they didn't have to go reapply and go through the whole, you know, painful paperwork process of doing this all over again, that they could just stay exactly where they were, get a new Medi-Cal card in the mail, and keep doing what they're doing. 
Um, that was another effort. We've also done quite a bit of work in ca covered California around trying to establish contracting standards with safety net plans um, and really trying to advocate for some different ideas like the basic health plan that would have improved affordability for our lowest income consumers in covered California. I will say this has been a good example where I think we originally were wanted to go kind of charging ahead with influencing covered California and getting really active. And the CAPH board and the membership said, we got a lot going on with Medi-Cal expansion. Don't, don't go too crazy on, <laughs> on this. It was clear they didn't want us to lose sight of what was going on in covered California to be aware and to shape what we could, but recognize that our bread and butter right now was, was the Medi-Cal program and, and thinking about how we could survive and thrive with Medi-Cal expansion. One of the areas that we, one of the kind of tools that we utilize um, is really our annual conference. It's our opportunity to bring together all of our kind of strategic leaders within our systems. It's a great chance for us as staff, but also our public health care system leaders to get a good understanding of what's going on in the external landscape around us, both in the policy or political arena, but also in the healthcare arena, and think about what's going on around the country that we might want to take advantage of and leverage. It's always a helpful, um, I don't want to say pulse check, but it's a helpful opportunity for us to kind of re-energize and, and think about the year ahead. We would, we would love that. Um, I have the dates, I think, in a, a slide towards the end, but it's always the first week of December. Yes, Susanna, you Oh, good. Then it's, a, it's always a great conference. It oscillates between Northern and uh, Southern California, yep. uh, uh, but uh, you're more than welcome to attend. I think you'll find it to be an addition of all our partners around the state to figure out how we're doing and how we're... No, that's okay. Um, advocacy. Um, so this one is near and dear to my heart, certainly. Um, one of the kind of key areas of our work is once we have a good idea, we've got to figure out how to get it passed. We have to get it approved. Um, and this really is focused both at the state and at the national level. We don't do very much work at the local level. We often rely on, on all of you to, to help with that. Um, but most of our work at the state and federal level really tries to um, focus on the particular issues that impact our public health care systems. We work quite closely with the California Hospital Association as well as our national association, America's Essential Hospitals, who is the kind of national trade association for all the safety net hospitals. And through our work with both of those trade associations, try and figure out kind of what is our niche that's particular impact to California's public health care systems. And then we'll do the exact same thing in our collaboration with counties. Um, CSAC is the State Association of Counties, and NACO is their national association. Part of what we try to do with our political strength is think about where there are intersections where we absolutely need our county boards of supervisors. Many state elected officials and congressional leaders have good relationships with these individuals um, or used to serve on the boards of supervisors themselves and have a particular affinity to that particular role. Um, and we will often lean on our county boards of supervisors to kind of help demonstrate our political strength, whether that's in Sacramento or in Washington, D.C. And there have been a number of times where they have been particularly influential um, in helping shape particular policy issues from, from the behalf of safety net providers and particularly that of public institutions and public systems. Financing. Probably know this, um, but our financing for public health care systems is quite unique and at times very challenging. We are paid very different than our private counterparts, which makes, um, which requires a, a level of, of 
finance expertise that we rely on all of our public health care systems to have and to help inform us, but we also have to have a certain amount of it in-house as well. Um, most of the work that we try to do on the financing side is trying to think about all the different pushes and pulls that are in the healthcare market today and where there are opportunities to maximize revenue that is consistent with our mission and where we're trying to go as providers. We also have a unique role in our community and in our state of providing the non-federal share. So as you know, Medicaid or Medi-Cal is a state and federal program. It requires a state contribution. And in the last 10, 15 years, the state has tried to get out of that requirement or responsibility as much as they can. And as public entities, we have the ability to step in for the state and provide that non-federal share. That at times can be quite challenging for us, but it also presents some opportunities for us to leverage federal funding that private providers don't get. The waiver is a perfect example. We're getting a significant amount of federal funding only because it won't cost the state a penny to do it. Um, but we can, we can take advantage and leverage those funds. Some examples around our financing in addition to the waiver is really maximizing a lot of what we call supplemental payments. These are payments that we get in addition to our base Medi-Cal payments. So what are the different types of payments we can draw down because we're safety net providers or because we're public entities that, um, that we may just have access to. Um, another is thinking about enrollment into the Medi-Cal program. Of a supplemental payment? Sure. We have um, a program called the Medicaid DISH program. It's disproportionate share hospital funding. It is funding that we've had for a number of years that provides care for the uninsured and for some of our, um, to make up for some of our low rates in the Medi-Cal program. It's a federal program. We have been able to organize that in California to where 90 plus percent of that Medicaid DISH funding goes explicitly to the public health care system. We tried to focus it in and say, okay, this should only be available for providers that, that have a certain mission and demonstrate that mission based on the, pa the patients that they serve. Other states, for example, could give the Medicaid DISH funds to every hospital in the state. And we've really tried to concentrate those funds here um, for particular providers. What's that? Uh, California's Medicaid dish programs just under I think about 1.1 billion a year and it's going it's included in one of our waiver programs but it's actually you know the Obama administration made an interesting argument and said you know if everybody's getting health care coverage why do you guys need this money anymore um, and so those funds are going down we certainly have a, in my opinion a valid argument to say not everybody got access to health care coverage, and there's still a significant amount of people that remain uninsured, and we need resources to care for those individuals. So the funds will go down. They're not being eliminated, but they are being cut. We have been working with the National Association to try and delay those cuts and, and um, prevent them from being as steep as, as they are. Once, um, in addition to all of that, we still have to make sure that these good ideas are workable on the ground. And this, is a, this really is where our, my SNI colleagues really shine, which is thinking about policy ideas and applying the clinical and operational expertise to understand how they work, um, do they achieve the goals that we've set out. And then once something is passed and approved, how we help with implementation. And that's thinking about learning collaboratives to improve actual del delivery of care programs, whether that's sepsis or thinking about ambulatory care and team-based care models, thinking about how we can be supportive around data infrastructure, but also thinking about managing risk. As we become increasingly responsible for the populations that we serve, we need to be able to understand 
what type of infrastructure, what type of tools we need available to effectively manage our risk and, and succeed under those, under those new models. Now let's apply all of that to the 2015 waiver. Now you probably know all of this, but why is the waiver so important? Because um, a whole lot of private providers weren't paying too much attention to this, but we certainly were. We were waking up and going to bed thinking about it. Um, the waiver is a major source, first of all, is a critical source of funding for our systems. I don't know the actual amount here for Alameda Health System, but it's probably a noticeable line item in the budget. About, sure. the, about the waiver, about um, Title Title 19, is it for Medicaid, or mm. Medicaid and the what whole, it is? The, when it was established and the, the waiver um, history of, of waivers for states in the two different kinds. 1915 and 1915, right? This is an 1115. 1115, right? Yeah. And yeah, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so first, a waiver is an agreement between the state and federal government, and it essentially waives certain federal Medicaid requirements. So there's basic Medicaid requirements today that everybody has to do. You can get a waiver that um, will allow you to do things in the Medi-Cal or Medicaid program that you couldn't otherwise do. Perfect example. In 2010, we started an early coverage expansion program, the Low Income Health Program. That allowed us to enroll people essentially into a Medicaid-like program, even though Medi-Cal expansion hadn't happened yet. So that's a good example of what the waiver will do. Our pay-for-performance program is not a traditional part of the Medi-Cal program. It allowed us to, to do things in the Medi-Cal program that support the goals of the administration. So it supported where the Obama administration wanted us to go, but weren't in the basic requirements of the Medicaid program today. Um, there are a couple of key things to remember about waivers. One is, as I mentioned, state and federal require, uh, agreement, so we, we aren't at the negotiating table. Um, but the second is that from a financing perspective, everything we propose to do, we have to demonstrate to the federal government that they wouldn't have spent one penny more if there was no waiver. So all the things we, ha we propose to do have to fit into this rubric of being able to demonstrate a certain amount of cost savings and improvements in health and so forth, so that over the five years, we, we have, the federal government hasn't spent any additional money. Now, I will be honest and say it's a little more of an art than a science, but, but that's essentially the rubric we have to be able to fit under. Um, the other thing I'll just mention is for a number of years, California received um, I think it was two-year waivers. I can't, it might have been three years, but, but sh much shorter-term waivers. And beginning in 2005, we received our first five-year waiver. It was 1115 waiver. We moved from what was called the 1915 waiver to an 1115 waiver. There's a lot of different kinds of waivers. Counties, for example, are in the midst of implementing a drug Medi-Cal waiver, which is very focused on um, substance use services. So they can apply to different things, but the essence is, allowing states or allowing communities to do things that they otherwise couldn't do in a traditional Medicaid. <clears throat> Waving from the very kind of stringent federal Medicaid rules. So the Medicaid rules will say, here's who's eligible for Medicaid coverage, here's how you have to provide those services. For example, it'll say that you have to, if you provide a benefit, you have to provide that benefit to everybody, regardless of where they live. So for example, whole person care is a pilot program. It's only gonna happen in a couple of counties. It won't be statewide we would need a waiver to do that because it's not everywhere. So the waiver is an accept, giving you an exception? Mm -hmm. Yes. To, okay. It's basically allowing you to pilot things you couldn't otherwise do. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Sure. Okay. Um, 
And the other kind of key goals of why it's so important, it's been a critical vehicle for us in advancing our delivery system transformation work, supports our role as a Medi-Cal provider, and as I mentioned, really leverages our unique ability because we can provide a non-federal share um, in participating in programs that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. So, Delecky will probably remember some of these early conversations, but starting probably back in 2013, we really started thinking about what we wanted the 2015 waiver to look like. Now, again, we weren't at the negotiating table, but we wanted to do everything we could to best position the state of California to negotiate something on our behalf and negotiate a program that we were excited about. And we wanted to build off of our success from 2010. Um, and in order to kind of devise a lot of this work, we not only had to know what we'd already done, but we had to be really aware of where CMS was and, and what they were approving elsewhere, where we were likely to hear concerns, and how we could kind of mold all of that together to develop our waiver programs. You, were, you said, you started out by saying you weren't at the table, and we weren't at the table. It was the state and the federal government at Correct. the table, and the state is basically the, the, um, the intermediary for, for the federal Medicaid funds. They're the overseer and the intermediary, so they're not actually providing the services, and, but they're, yet they're negotiating these waivers. An interesting way to do business, since they're not really actually at finding it or, or really, uh, some would say, understanding exactly how. You know, it was a, it was a unique, um, it was a unique process. I mean, I, I think they view themselves as implementing the Medi-Cal program here. I mean, there's clearly requirements that California has for their program that doesn't exist nationally. Um, so they, they, I'm sure, would have referred to themselves as the lead negotiators, um, working in partnership with the federal government. But you're right. I think there was a unique role that we had to be able to play, we, the collective we, in, in shaping that, in shaping those proposals, um, in terms of thinking about what we needed to do from a care delivery perspective that I think the state wouldn't have had the same expertise in being able to offer. I'd just add to this area, it also speaks to the uniqueness of CAPH as an organization. In these states, uh, there isn't a right. organized group uh, or an association that is representative of challenges, interests, uh, goals, and visions of, right. like a CAPH. You're, We're the only. You're the only one, yeah. right, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah. yeah. And it occurred, it just, I was thinking about it because of what's going on in Colorado, and that's coming top down, basically, from the governor, right? Right. To, to, coverage, so yep. it is kind of unique in CAP. New York the same way, yep. Massachusetts, a little different because of the way that they approached uh, it, but, but still the same sort of premise. Exactly. That there isn't, I mean, a lot of states have, like us, a lot of safety nets uh, throughout the state, but they don't have an discreetly and uh, uniquely that happens through hospital association or something like that. partner with them, but we also. Very true. Yeah. And in order to do all of this policy development work, we had to we had to build and, and learn from the, the leadership and the expertise of our membership. I mean, the, they were so involved in shaping all of this work. Um, I think that is what made it so strong and, and why we got it across the finish line. Um, I think we've talked a little bit about a lot of this. Um, but I'll just, I'll just share with you that we engaged our membership in a variety of different ways. The CAPH board was incredibly engaged, particularly over the last 18 months. Um, and then we had a number of advisory groups and work groups. They were all focused on kind of different components of, of the waiver, and I'll talk a little bit about that in just a second. Um, as you may remember, when the state submitted their first 
their original 2015 waiver proposal, it was $17 billion and probably included anywhere from 12 to 15 different programs. I don't exactly remember the total. Um, we ended up with four, um, and these are three of the four. And so of the, the big programs that we really focused on, we were successful in being able to get those across the finish line and included a level of detail that, that I would honestly argue wasn't um, that the other programs didn't have. The other thing I'll mention is all three of these programs rely on a source of local match or local non-federal share that um, the other programs needed some sort of state contribution. And in, a, in an environment, again, where the government... Local would mean our public health care systems or the counties. So for whole person care, um, the, the non-federal contribution or the, the non-federal share it can either be the public health care system, but it could also be the county behavioral health department. It could be the county, one of the county agencies. And so because it requires a public entity to provide that, that, um, that match, that non-federal share. So you've probably heard uh, the, the IGTs, intergovernmental transfers, is a form of a local match. So the county putting forth dollars to the state to say, here's how much Alameda County via health pack or, or through, I, right. I think we can also include uh, Measure A. I think yeah. Those are dollars that we're contributing to public health care. You now represent that to the federal government as our share and get that matched. The other thing is CPEs or certified public expenditures. So we take costs that we have incurred and say those are costs that we have put forth and have used, and those can be matched as well. Have a non-federal share or safety nets. That's a particular way that we do it. Exactly. So these were the the three big programs that we really focused on, and and like I said, really kind of got us across the finish line. So how did we put these all together? Um, First, I'll talk a little bit about the programmatic elements. And I, I'm kind of like picking and choosing some different programs just to give you a flavor of what this looks like. For the prime program, we really wanted to build off of our prior delivery system improvement work through the DISRIP, our prior pay for performance program. And so the first thing we started to do was to kind of outline what types of projects we wanted to look at. And we created prime work groups for every single project. And in each of those work groups, we try to leverage the expertise of all of our membership in each of these areas. And so you can see who some of the Alameda Health System representatives were in different types of projects um, that we really, you know, we, these were small groups, probably four or five people at the most, helping shape these projects. And together they helped identify what the goals for each project should be, what types of activities would happen within the delivery system to get these programs and projects off the ground, and then how we should measure them. What should be the clinical metrics that we would use to say you've been successful in you know, expanding um, and improving primary care? What, what should those be? How should we measure success? Um, in addition to the individual work groups, we also had a clinical advisory committee that was a lot of our clinical leaders that played a bigger role in just shaping the over overall kind of program structure, so which populations in our system should we target for improvement, some of the big kind of overarching elements of the program, and then had a technical advisory committee as well. So once a work group, for example, had said, yes, we should measure diabetes control and mammograms and readmissions and so forth, the technical advisory committee would weigh in and say, yeah, but we don't have the data to measure that, or we operationally can't make this work, and played a really important role in, in kind of shaping um, how we could then effect, effectually implement this, this program at the local level. And all of these groups 
rolled up recommendations that went to the CAPH board. And that's, that's a lot of how it works. So we would take recommendations that had really been vetted already by the membership, but all of it eventually had to be approved by the CAPH board. On the financing side, I'll highlight a different program, and that was the Global Payment Program. The Global Payment Program is a new program that takes existing federal funding that we had. So the Medicaid DISH program that I mentioned is, is one of our two sources of federal funds here. It took existing funding that we already had, but we had some real restrictions on how we could use that money. A lot of it had to be paid for in the hospital setting. Um, there were also restrictions on who we could provide care to. For example, one of the sources didn't allow us to serve the undocumented. And we needed some additional flexibility in those, in those funding sources to more effectively provide care to our remaining uninsured. And so we created the Global Payment Program and worked really closely with our chief medical officers as well as many of our ambulatory care leads to start to think about how we could design a program that a, secured all of our fund, federal funding so we could preserve what we had today, but redesigned the way that we provided that care and leveraged that funding in a different way so that we could expand ambulatory care services, so that we could invest in types of services that we don't get paid for now, so health coaching, care navigators, nurse advice lines. A lot of these are really important services, but we have no funding attached to them. So the Global Payment Program allows us to, to be able to invest in these services, and all of this is focused on the remaining uninsured. And so we, we worked really closely with the membership to make sure we could tailor this program in a way that most effectively cared for, cared for the uninsured in the more appropriate setting, but also still leveraged that federal funding um, in, in a good way. So then once we had our ideas, then we had to get this passed. And that's where the advocacy really came in. And as I mentioned, we engaged our board very, very regularly. And by the fall, we were probably doing, we were doing weekly calls with updates on what was going on. Um, opportunities to, to really get input on some thorny issues. Um, it also coincided with a couple of trips to Washington, D.C. Devecchio was in the room for our Octo infamous October meeting with the, the head of CMS. Um, I really think that this October meeting um, really helped shape the negotiations. It was a week before the waiver was set to expire. Um, things were getting fairly tense, I think, between the state and the federal government, and we came in with an opportunity to shape these programs from a California perspective um, in a way that provided some, some on-the-ground um, understanding um, and really talked in a meaningful way about why these were important and why we needed to get this waiver approved. I, th I think that that meeting really helped move the negotiations forward. We also couldn't do any of this without maintaining a very close partnership with the state of California. Again, this is a state-federal negotiation. We're kind of on the outside. We had to figure out how to stay as closely attached to the hip with them as we possibly could so that they viewed us as a resource, as, as a source of expertise to help them with, um, with drumming up political support, but also influencing the proposal um, from a policy and a clinical perspective. Um, and that, that was really important all the way through. In order to get this over the finish line, there were, in addition to the October meeting, CMS and the federal government needed to hear from our elected officials. This was a negotiation that I think we came into thinking could be difficult. Just because California had led the way with health reform implementation, CMS was not in the mindset that they had to reward us with this huge waiver and do all these new favors for California. I think we really had to demonstrate why this was important and why this was needed for our state. And that really required a significant amount of 
involvement from the congressional delegation. And we really did that in a couple of different ways. Clearly, we were, we were present in Washington, um, and so were our members and our board leaders, but we also engaged our boards of supervisors. We moved forward with a delegation letter from all the Democrats in the congressional delegation, um, and many of them heard directly from their boards of supervisors, who then subsequently made calls to CMS and to the White House and said, we need you to get this deal done for our system because here's why it's so important. Um, and that was, that was critical. And one of the things I'd love to, to hear from all of you about is given the, the trustee, um, the, the opportunities that all of you have to be leaders, we have, I think, two opportunities, both with the boards of supervisors, but also with all of you to think about how we can continue to um, advance a lot of these really important programmatic and policy efforts. Now that we have a state and federal agreement, we need enacting legislation. And that is actually what we're involved in now. I was just in Sacramento a couple days ago on our two big bills. The state needs authorizing state legislation in order to, to move forward with all of these activities. And your local assembly member um, is authoring one of the waiver bills, which was quite ex is quite exciting. Um, I will be honest and say I don't expect these bills to be contentious. Um, we need two-thirds support, so we need Republicans to be on board with this. Um, but it is absolutely essential for us to get these programs off the ground. So I think we're in good shape, but still work ahead to, to get this, um, to get these bills passed. The board includes all of our public health care system CEOs or a designee that they have designated on their behalf. So Delvecchio is on our board. Um, we have representatives from each of our systems. Parenthetically, do other states have similar, not CAPH similar, but, but waiver similar Other programs? states do have waivers. You know, we were the first state to, to come up with the program, the DISRIP, the Pay for Performance Program in the 2010 waiver. Six states have replicated those programs since we started. So one of the things, for example, we were very worried about in the 2015 negotiations was we were the first state up for renewal. We were the first state to say, yep, we want one of those again. And um, we were very nervous that CMS was going to say, we're not, in the, we're not in the interest of renewing these forever um, because everybody was watching what would happen to California. And so I think there was a worry we had um, that they might not be interested in renewing one of these. But a lot of states have Medicaid waivers. Some do it for purposes like we do, and then some states like Arkansas, for example, has a Medicaid waiver that they've done to get their Medicaid expansion passed. Um, so that includes some things that are a little less desirable, in my opinion, from a patient perspective, but an so expansion all the same. <laughs> in your heart of hearts, do you think that it really did save them the money or that it was... Uh, our revenue, program? I mean, cost neutral, the, the waivers. Do we, do those DISRA programs actually result in lower costs, the amount of money they paid us to perform them? Well, I have to say first, we didn't capture the cost savings, so we didn't track them. Um, but I absolutely think that the Hope Center would be a great example of this. Our ability to reduce ED visits and admissions that are not needed, but are only happening because we're not doing a good enough job keeping patients' health managed in a more effective way absolutely saves the federal government money. So, so I think we have a pretty strong case to say that the improvements we've made to our systems have absolutely cut down on um, unnecessary costs, um, but we didn't, you know, we didn't do a year-by-year -year tracking right. over time, absolutely. So 
research. Hello, examples of the wave perspective. Could you give me one example, please? Sure. Um, there have been some states that have moved, have said, okay, um, Obama administration, CMS, we will expand the Medicaid program, but we want to institute co-pays and cost-sharing and things along those lines that aren't part of the traditional Medicaid structure, things like that. I would argue for individuals making, you know, $14,000 a year, that's a challenge. So now we are in the implementation phase of all of this, and for all of us that have been pretty excited about watching these programs come together, we now get to see um, we now get to see them unfold locally. I know Tavecchio and probably many of his team are a little overwhelmed by all of this, so I will temper my excitement. Um. <laughs> We're overwhelmed and excited, so that's fair. Yes. We'll, we'll hold the overwhelm. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of work that we are now just really beginning to do now that we've moved into the implementation phase. And I'll just share with you part of what we're thinking about with this involves kind of the strategic level support that we can provide. Um, and that's really happening through our waiver integration teams. So bringing together our clinical finance data operations leadership from each of our systems and helping provide support to all of them as they think about all of the waiver implementation programs, and as they think about how that fits into all of the other areas in their strategic plan or all the other things that they're working with, kind of how they work all of those things together. Make sure that's, the doors that's one closed. of the perks. I did that the first time too. I was like, wait, they can't come in here. Is that door closed? Yes. <laughs> oh no, that one isn't closed. It's only, they'll have to lose a lot of weight to get through that one, so. Oh no. Turkeys. <laughs> I think they're actually somewhat aggressive, uh, mm -hmm. not, you know, just cuddly, adorable things, but anyway. Thank you, Derek. All right. So that's the first kind of big area is how we're providing support from a big kind of strategic implementation level. But then there's a lot of work that's going to happen within each of these programmatic areas, helping our members think about what types of prime activities they need to do, how we're working with all of them to share best practices, providing technical support on some of the clinical metrics. Um, same thing with the global payment program. How are they redesigning their ambulatory care systems? How we can build on some good lessons learned? And working closely with our chief finance officers to think about how we make sure we, we leverage all the federal financing that's available. And then with whole person care, we've been fortunate to be part of a big kind of statewide coalition with our county partners, our local health plans, SCIU, um, and a number of other county agencies in thinking about how we can implement these on the ground and are providing support to our members in thinking about how they're putting their applications together and, and really designing these, um, these programs. So that was probably the one program I didn't talk about too much. Whole Person Care is one of the four programs in the waiver. It is a pilot program, so counties will be, communities will be able to apply, and there's only a select number that will, that will get the, essentially almost like a grant fund. Um, it is intended to serve as a local pilot to provide support services or funding for coordinated care for individuals that are accessing multiple services in multiple ways. So I want you to, so I'll give you an example. One of our systems ran their top 1% of hospital users. 70% of them were homeless. 22% um, had a record of being in the jail health system in the last 12 months. Over 50% had more than three chronic conditions. So these are our most, most vulnerable patients. Should already be doing? Well, very good question. Um, whole person care is intended to help bring together a lot of local agencies 
that are all on their own probably trying to solve the population health question, but together for this population can't do it by themselves. And so as hard as Alameda Health System may try through the Hope Center or through other areas, they don't have all the resources they need to get them enrolled in food stamps or housing supports or other areas. And the whole person care pilot provides funding to not just public health care systems, but a number of other county agencies and local plans so that everybody's working together on your top tier of individuals, your top level of patients. I tend to think of population health is not what do we want to do with the 5,000 patients that are coming through our doors 10 times in six months, but the 200,000 patients that are at risk for diabetes or what, whatever that might be. High risk population that highest risk. Yes. yes. So whole person care is to help augment cost and support to address the needs of the high risk. Is that what this is? You about? got it. Yeah. It's spot on. It's, yeah. It's, it's and it's, and it's beyond. I'm going to turn this off. Yeah. Okay. It's Sorry. the one. Yeah. Right. It's, okay. And it's like, I can just, it says the overarching goal is the coordination of health, behavioral health, and all the social services and the health care. Okay. What, what about housing? Does it, yep. Yeah. It, yeah. It social services, housing, housing okay. so, food stamps. Yep. You know. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's why, um, so, so Prime and GPP, the public hospitals are the lead agencies in terms of the projects and the deliverables. Whole person care has to be a county. Uh, so, so irrespective of if it were us or even a county delivery system, it's the county that actually is the lead applicant for this uh, grant uh, because they're involving beyond the healthcare delivery system. They're looking at you know, social services, they're looking at housing, they're looking at other entities and bringing all of us together yep. for this very uh, discrete population. Yeah. Uh, it's in our, yeah, it's healthcare, well, it's healthcare services agencies or, or their equivalent, which would include the delivery side, the public, public health side, and, and, and other, but would be, they, they're the lead, but housing and other parts that might not, well, housing is usually city, but there may be some group. In, in, our, in our county structure, who, I'm trying to look at the organization, who's responsible for the coordination and the accountability of the delivery of the services and appropriate expenditures of funds? When you say the county, in, and, and, well, I understand the Board of Supervisors does everything. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at more of the administrative hierarchy. Right. Who is the one that has to... The lead agency in Alameda County is... I'm the, talking about whole person care. Uh, no, the lead agency is the Health Care Services it, Agency. County. So, so what has happened so far, and Sarah may mention, is um, each county has submitted, who, who are interested, have uh, submitted. It's an optional and non-binding letter of intent so the state can get a sense of how many counties are interested in this and may want to participate, uh, and then the application comes later, uh, but Alameda County has submitted a letter saying that we, Alameda County, intend to submit an application for this particular program. We're working with the Alliance, we're working with Alameda County, we're working with Sutter Health, we're working with the housing uh, and social service agencies and others, together a comprehensive application that we're still formulating to uh, participate in the whole person care pilot. Yep. On this, have we run data on our top users in our system? Because I'm, I'm guessing that the county's whole person care population overwhelmingly are using us. I'm sure there's some South County folks that maybe are going to Valley because they're coming out of Santa Rita or something. But maybe. for the most part, aren't, 
don't we have almost all of them? Like, have, have we done that frequent flyer analysis? Uh, yes. So actually, in the next presentation after oh, lunch, you'll sorry. get a sense from the sorry. Hope Center program, the care management program. So we know it from a utilization side. But a better sort of, we, we all agree that a sort of better collective source of truth for Medi-Cal and uninsured is actually data that comes out of, it's, it's the people who pay for it. So irrespective of who provides it. So the data from the behavioral health care services, that is claims data, claims data from uh, the alliance, and that way we can catch the high utilizers that aren't just coming to us, but might be hitting multiple EDs, and and the payer has all that information. So that was the question, to, or the response to trusted advantages, how that data integration and analysis process is coming thus far. And in order, in order to apply for whole person care, the county will have to demonstrate that the public hospital, the local plan, and the behavioral health department, and a number of other agencies have all said, yes, we want to be part of this. Here's how we're all working together to coordinate care for this population. So it's pretty exciting. I, I will be honest and say, yes, I absolutely think it's stuff we should be doing anyway, but it's really hard to do. And um, this will provide a, yeah, and it'll provide a way to kind of get everybody organized around a particular program. And Joe. Oh, well, to Joe's point, this is kind of health is not just healthcare, right? right? This is the whole thing that was started back in the early 2000s with Dr. Eiten looking exactly. at the entire environment of yeah. that people live in to determine their health status and their What's the potential uh, funding for that. For there is 300 million available through the waiver. Um, just to do a back of the envelope, um, so don't quote me on this. There is a requirement that um, one county in particular can't receive more than a third of the funds, so we can all guess who that big county to the south might be. Um, and so then everybody else would be available for the other $200 million. Got it. Um, I would not be surprised if the state funds anywhere from eight to 12 pilots. Um, I think a lot of counties are interested in doing this, so we'll have to see. Everyone's going to submit their budgets and we'll go, kind of go from there. We're providing a lot, we're coordinating with a lot of the other agencies at the state level, and then we're providing support directly to the membership in terms of, you know, here's how other programs are doing it, here's some things you should keep in mind in terms of state requirements, how to best position yourself um, for an application. Yeah. Okay, so very briefly, I'll also just mention as much as we've been focused on the waiver, there's a whole lot of other issues that we pay a lot of attention to and do the exact kind of policy, program, finance, and advocacy work on. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of the kind of unique work that we, CAPHS and I, try to do on, our, on behalf of our members really are kind of the unique focus of issues that, that impact the hospital industry, counties, community clinics, since we operate a number of clinics. Um, and so we share a lot of interest with our community health uh, community clinic partners, and the low-income populations overall. Um, and you can see some of the other types of efforts that we're involved in, a pay payment reform pilot, payment reform pilot with community-based clinics, coordination on multiple local initiatives that a lot of counties are in the middle of, of implementing, um, the hospital fee, which is of, of great priority to the California Hospital Association. Um, a lot of ballot measures will be on the November 2016 ballot that could have some implications for the Medi-Cal program, um, and then ongoing work with Covered California. I'll talk a little bit about the Medi future of Medicaid managed care plans, but I continue to think that they are one of our greatest assets locally and best strategic partners in thinking about how we can continue to work with them, strengthen that relationship, um, and continue to do some really creative problem solving with them, I think will be really important 
as we prepare for 2020. Um, even though we are just beginning to implement the waiver, um, we are already starting to think about what's next. And part of the reason that we're doing that is the recognition that the waiver is not a something that will stay with us forever. It's only a five-year program. The federal government has been very clear in their negotiations that if they are still in any sort of leadership position five years from now, they don't have an interest in renewing uh, another prime program for California. They want these kinds of innovative ideas to eventually phase out and just be a core part of the Medicaid program overall. And if that's actually true, if this is our last waiver, what's next? How do we start planning for 2020? How do we recognize the critical funding role that the waiver plays and start to think about new opportunities that we can leverage and, and how we can make up for some of that gap in our financing? Another big emerging issue, well, I wouldn't say this is actually emerging, but something we're really monitoring is can we continue to sustain the, the initial gains that we've seen in healthcare coverage? What does that look like over time? Um, and how will our, our public health care systems continue um, in terms of providing care to a significant number of the Medi-Cal uh, Medi population? So, sure. What, what do you mean by sure. So um, California had three plus million people that have applied, have signed up for Medicaid since, Medi-Cal since 2014. We have seen some real noticeable increases in the, in the number of, of Medi-Cal enrollees that are coming to our systems for care, previously uninsured, coming back to us for care. What we don't know is if they will stay with us. So part of the work that we have ahead of us around access and patient experience is making sure that when they come to us that they're happy where they come and that they keep coming back. Um, and five years from now, the goal is that we still are seeing the same number of, of Medi-Cal enrollees today that, that we are seeing five years from now. Our worry could be that more providers start participating in the Medi-Cal program and our Medi-Cal patients leave us and who's left are those that remain uninsured. And from a financial standpoint, we won't have the ability to continue to just provide care to them. And, and to append to that, um, uh, there is also a risk and a worry that the uh, that even if they if it's not just a remaining uninsured, but also some uh, uh, Medi-Cal covered individuals or Medicaid covered individuals, that it's not just those that are the highest right. risk with the most complex situations. Low risk people become the active uh, and easily uh, population, and exactly. it's the entire population. Right of the un uninsured and cannot be insured. It's actually evolving. So, I mean, I know they're two different yeah. numbers, but yeah. what? So we have about three million that are uninsured today. Um, about half of those are individuals that are uninsured and not eligible for coverage. So about a million and a half. And now with the state's move to expand Medi-Cal for undocumented children, which just uh, took effect recently, yeah. that number should be coming down a little bit, but I don't know if it's, it's sizable. It's pretty small. Yeah, because some, many of them already. Yeah. Is the, in, what's the change in that number from five years, five years ago when, when, only, you know, when uh, there was a whole um, demographic group excluded? Yeah, at 7 million? Uh, I think that's about right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a significant drop. Um, um, and the uninsurable are primarily done. Another kind of emerging issue, and this really relates to, you know, will our patients stay with us, is how we demonstrate value to our communities and our patients. And I really think about this kind of in three key ways. The first is patients. Our ability to, again, provide good patient experience and access means they'll choose us 
hopefully. Um, but we also need to demonstrate our value to our plans and our payers. We need to be able to show um, through our data, through, through patient experience, that we are leaders in providing high quality care to our safety net populations. We want them to contract with us. We want them to see the value in working with us. I also think there's an important opportunity for us to continue to leverage our partnerships, particularly at the local level, um, and really demonstrate our value with our community clinic partners, with labor, with other providers, and thinking about how we can continue to work together and think about some innovative solutions. We have a shared mission. We have a shared commitment to this population. How do we work together and think about some, some new ideas um, that can benefit us financially, but also in terms of the patients that we serve, um, and really can improve our overall community health? I think this is my last, second to last slide. The last, um, kind of, one of the other kind of key issues I'll just mention is how we stay um, aware and from a problem solving and a strategic planning perspective, um, think about the, the, the emerging issues that are impacting our patients. And is there a way that we can provide a particular role, um, both in terms of serving them more effectively, but also addressing some particular challenges? This is not an issue, a big issue right now. I think it will be in the next couple of years, and that is the people that move on and off the Medi-Cal and Covered California programs. When you move from Medi-Cal to Covered California, chances are you're picking a new health plan, a brand new provider, and you're paying premiums and you didn't before. That is, is keeping quite a few people in a bit of a gap. They, they're losing their continuity of care. They're having to pay money for things that they didn't pay money for before. And there's a good number of people that are falling off of coverage as they transition into covered California. And as the minimum wage goes up, more people will move into covered California because they won't be eligible for Medi-Cal. So we need to think about, is there a particular role that public health care systems can play in providing that continuity of care, maybe even assisting them from an affordability perspective? What's the unique role that we might be able to offer in, in addressing that, that, in my opinion, that real growing need? I just throw in that for, I think this is the case, tell me if it isn't, but for example, there are some states that uh, New York comes to mind, but for uh, individuals who are on an exchange product who now have to pay premiums, uh, New York has a product for which those, those individuals are from them, uh, but they may not be able to afford those premiums, and right. I think they're either subsidizing yep. in some way based off of a sliding scale, the premium pay for those don't end up you know, falling out of the insurance and... and um, this is what I just had. Could, uh, could AHS provide a local subsidy to capture those patients? So currently, it, 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 currently with our main Medi-Cal partner, which is the Alliance, which covers, I think, somewhere around 80-plus percent of the Medi-Cal lives in Alameda County, they don't currently have a product. They don't participate in Covered California. And that happened, as you'll recall, because of the conservatorship. Right. Uh, uh, they, you know, pared down, and now they're solely Medi-Cal with a little in uh, IHSS. Um, they, because I happen to be on that board, uh, are looking at how they might look at things down the road once things are stabilized and they really feel like they've got a call problems and uh, challenges addressed uh, in a sustainable way may, may return to that. We can still engage with patients in the, uh, the exchange if they're in a plan for which we have a contract. So sometimes when we're talking about contracts with Kaiser and with Anthem for commercial products, uh, those may be some of the patients who are on those exchange plans within those, um, those uh, health plans that could still come to us for their care.
question. Oh, sorry. Wait. Oh, sorry. So if they're covered California, could we, I mean, again, I'm, I'm thinking a little giddy. Sure. Could we uh, market to that, to those covered California population that we can cover their copay or their, 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 their fee if they want to join our system mm -hmm. as a way to capture that that group and have them use our primary care, et cetera, become part of our. You mean with the, with the I don't know. Are, yeah, I was going to say, are you asking? Re, are I you asking ask where sort the of money uh, would come from? Uh, I asked if this is a good idea because then these are going to be a lot of low risk patients that we're going to get capitation for at some point, right? Uh, they could be. Uh, I don't think we should presume that they are all low risk. Well, no, uh, the, I mean, uh, but they could be. Yeah. Based on what we learned earlier, a lot of them will be that bottom chunk, and then the ones in the middle will provide appropriate. Uh, they could, yeah. So, you're so that public hospitals aren't getting the covered California population. Right. We have and, a very small presence in covered California. And so is this a way for, 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 for the public hospitals to capture them? Say, look, we got your back, whether you're Medi-Cal or not, whether you're churning back and forth or having to pay these new premiums, you cover because we have a public mission. We would have to do it in a, so the short answer is I think there is a way. I have been, this is something I think we're quite interested in. Alameda Health System couldn't say, Del Vecchio, I'm giving you a $50 a month subsidy. What they could do is maybe Alameda Alliance could go in and, and offer a product in Covered California, and all of the providers that participate in Alameda Alliance could contribute towards some sort of additional subsidy to bring down the cost. There could be some ways, or we could go through the foundation. There's the, a direct provider is not allowed to be able to offer additional financial assistance. However, local entities, i.e. a county, foundations, other types of entities could, could be able to do that. So I do think there's some creative thinking we could do, but the alliance would have to be willing to want to go in and, and do that. And right now our vehicle to get into Covered California is pretty limited um, without the local plans. You know, Got it. And, and as far as a direction setting, so this gets to Trustee Lawrence's earlier question, uh, when we look at where the greatest opportunity is right away, we still have so much opportunity within our current medical population. Right. This is not something that we would exclude as we look three, five years down the road, but in the immediate time, it wouldn't be, it would likely be one of our key uh, uh, targets and directions to take. You know, it, it's, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll wait till you're. Um, just a minute ago, the mention of the increase in the minimum, which is something that I, I advocate for, but I just realized that the fact be worse than the increase age that they receive because of the now, the health care right. that they will have, the, uh, the taxes, etc. But more specifically, they're how they come to go into covered California but out of their pocket Potentially, uh, I think, depending on where, where sort of the size of the family and where they fall on that's, the federal yeah. poverty level. Yeah, you can, you know, all these types of aid programs, that's one of the big things that, you know, there's, there's, there's not a, it can be a cliff that once you come off, it's not necessarily an escalated way to get you back to some fundamental level of sustainability, but right away you lose some of the supplemental things you have. And well, that, that and I think the argument that, that people like us can make with our cities who are in fact looking at increasing the minimum wage is make certain that there has been some kind of uh, pension paid to what that what the other dynamic complexity of uh, and the domino that rolls out relative to this piece of legislation and how it how it hurts the very people they're hoping to help. So, 
Yeah, but that's there, very interesting. Yeah, there are some other elements at play here. For example, like DOL has increased Department of Labor, where your uh, overtime, uh, you know, they've they've increased the window where you could have to, had to earn like under 35k or something to be eligible for overtime. Now they've made it to 55k. So the thing is that a lot of these are going to go into that minimum wage increase are eligible for will become eligible even in that higher pay grade for overtime and things. So there are other elements that are hopefully, like the thing is not still a continuum which is making sure that like you get a little bit of a raise and you lose all of that, but there are other elements that are working to make sure that that increase is something that you see substantially yeah. in terms yeah. of quality of life. I was going to add one other thing. So the county uh, is involved in, uh, we have a group a convening of all the safety net providers called the Safety Net Collaborative, where we talk about healthcare and other sort of pertinent things to the population we serve. And the county is involved in a housing bond initiative right now, which is one of the few times we've done this, I think, in, in quite some time. And there's a lot of discussion around what that might look like and who might be eligible for it, what, you know, what the dollars for the bond are used for. And some of the, the discussion we were having recently around this was, um, um, I pointed out that uh, I heard the story that uh, there's a big challenge in uh, Santa Clara County and I think a little bit in Alameda County for uh, um, skilled professionals uh, that are paid decent wages but because of the cost of living uh, can't actually afford to live locally. So for example, uh, I heard on, I think it was NPR, that in Santa Clara County that you can, a family of four can make over $100,000, like $125,000 and still qualify for subsidized housing because it's that expensive to you know, get housing there, and in Alameda County, I think it was around a hundred thousand or so. So, so the question is like, you know, when when you look at what this material impact would be on a family, so two two or multiple wage earners in a family, uh, could there be other ways of which you counterbalance something like now you're experiencing healthcare premiums? Um, could are there other services that could help to offset the fact that the cost of living here is? What I and. I want to touch on this tangentially a couple of questions, but um, we're, Alameda County and Alameda Health System is a little bit unique because of the alliance. In, in other parts of the state, there are commercial insurers who are over California as well as in the Medicaid expansion. As I understand it, there's some are doing the Medicaid. But we, Sarah touched on this earlier, yeah, we're, we're one of several what are called two-plan uh, uh, counties. So there is a local uh, public plan like the Alliance, and there's also a commercial plan. So that exists here, too, uh, where Anthem, uh, Blue Cross, actually does Medi-Cal as well, and we contract with them in the county. Uh, but the Alliance has a lion's share. Same sort of model exists in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, and a couple of other cities and, or counties. Well, uh, that, given that um, the alliance is a, a, our biggest strategic partner in, in all of this, in the, especially in the Medi-Cal expansion. Right. And so with, with their recent challenges and, their, um, and the fact that Anthem is not as intent on covering the Medi-Cal population in Alameda County, in my opinion, but uh, I think that's a, a big emerging issue for us is, is both strengthening the alliance and coming to a very strong and, and permanent agreement with the alliance about who, who, who we're covering and how we're going to cover them and what our relationship is. 
So we are doing that. You'll be happy to know that the Alliance is actually now out of receivership as of October uh, last year, and they have a year of monitoring that was still uh, uh, uh But that means that one of the big requirements was their uh, T&E or tangible debt equity is back at the right level, uh, that they are doing uh, appropriately, uh, appropriate timely payments to payers uh, uh, and other sorts of things that were issues for them. So so they are actually reestablishing a really strong footing now uh, and, and wanting to push further because they still do have some challenges relative to heat and quality of care across the pairs, which include or providers, which includes us, aren't re meeting meeting all the standards around around some of the sort of clinical quality, uh, some of the access uh, metrics. So they're pushing forward along with us, and we do partner quite closely on those those sorts of things. So you have that organization is going to be effective as we move towards population health and and hope. But I, I am. As I speak today, I am absolutely comfortable of where they are right now, where they're trying to go, their understanding of where we're trying to go, uh, because we've been talking to them as we develop our plan. I, as I mentioned, serve on their board, so so we're related, and then um, that way, and then we do a lot of convenings between all of us um, um, uh, as a community to look at how can we partner better going forward. I think we're very closely aligned, and um, right now, uh, both, I would say, because we went through a bit of a trough too, uh, getting to a position where we are better positioned to, uh, to what they call for us to do and what our patients need. So asking for that reassurance because I know that as we've expanded and as Medi-Cal has expanded in Alameda throughout the state, the alliance was very, I just wanted to be reassured into um, our new initiatives are going to be have the capacity to work. And new leadership, uh, they again are out of uh, uh, out of conservatorship, their medical uh, enrollment is growing with them, uh, and they are talking to us about this shift from uh, fee for service to capitation and how we might do that most more effectively in partnership with them. Okay. I'll just quickly finish up here. Um, the last kind of key piece I just wanted to touch on, I think, um, is quite pertinent to all of you, and that is around governance. Um, you will probably be interested to know that um, there is a greater movement for the public health care systems towards an authority model. Um, I'm sure Del Vecchio is getting lots of questions about this um, from some of his colleagues, but we have um, one system that just moved to this last year and at least two or three others that are really seriously thinking about it. Um, and as we think about changes in governance to allow them um, a way to be able to operate in their local communities that might provide some flexibility um, to compete for their patients and, and make some changes in their system. Um, I think it's important that we continue to think about how we preserve our strength and the connection that we have to our county boards of supervisors um, and our local financing opportunities. Me Measure A being a great example of that. Um, coordination with all of our public and county entities, how we still stay in, in one way or another kind of part of the public county family with um, Behavioral Health, Alameda Alliance, um, other, other county agencies and how we work together and how we also continue to retain and maintain and strengthen our political base. The boards of supervisors, our community leaders, our greatest asset is trying to make sure that we all speak from a powerful voice and, and both um, with you as the trustees but also with the boards of supervisors of thinking about how we keep that voice strong um, and pretty aligned in, in being ahead. Um, lastly, in terms of key takeaways just for all of this, um, this is a pretty exciting moment, I think, for a lot of our public health care systems or for all of them. We really have to thrive in the moment with waiver implementation. We need to do well. 
but we can't only think about today. We really have to continue to start. We really have to start planning for the future. We need to really continue to leverage the partnership that we have together, both CAPH and SNI, but a partnership with all of our members. Um, and I think there continues to be an important role that we can play and that our members can play in working with boards of supervisors, boards of trustees, and thinking about how we maintain that strong voice both at the state and the federal level. Um, how we articulate the role that we play in our communities, even in a post-ACA environment, really what that looks like. Um, and how we can continue to demonstrate that value um, going forward. And then last, I'll just mention the, the annual conference uh, is on December 7th through the 9th. Um, it is a really good opportunity to kind of hear what the latest and greatest is. I will be fascinated to hear who our political speaker is going to be and what they will have to say in December about <laughs> what just happened. Um, but we also are in the midst of lining up a number of really important clinical leaders that are talking about some pretty exciting work that's happening on the ground around the country that we can build on and steal from, um, if appropriate. So there you go. So, you know, county um, have the bandwidth for our hearing that redesigning for population health management, redesigning for building a culture of health yeah. is innovation, innovation. And so because we don't have the kind of um, capital to have a Mayo or a Stanford kind of innovation lab, I see a lot of funding opportunities from HRSA, from like against the CMS innovation mm -hmm. and all of that. So as CAPH, do you coordinate and guide between the hospitals to say, if you're doing person health, let's get that HRSA part of money and you do something else so we can all learn about what are some ways of continuity of care or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, care delivery and mm -hmm. things. Because, like, I know it takes capacity to mm -hmm. apply for uh, HRSA funding and do that. You need staff. You need all of that. But if it's, like, spread out, given we, that we are such a large state, we might be yeah. able to do stuff that right now we don't have the bandwidth to innovate in ways. There's a lot of good stuff happening, mm -hmm. but we need to do more. That's a really good question. Um, you know, a lot of the kind of local pilot efforts, I think part of what we see our role is, is to make sure that our, our public health system leaders are aware of the opportunities and they can make the best decisions, in, at least in my opinion, of whether or not that's the appropriate grant or the appropriate pilot program that fits in with their broader strategic plan and their partners at the local level. Um, we think a lot of these ideas are great, but, but you know, what is it, blooming a million flowers or whatever they're yeah. saying is, yeah. is also something we want to be careful with so that we really rely on Del Vecchio and, and our board leaders to, to, to make that determination of this is the right grant for us or this is a great idea, but it's, it's, it's kind of outside the scope of, of where we're going from a strategic planning perspective. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much for coming. This has I have been, one question, oh, Michelle. Sorry, sorry before been, you thank her. That's okay. um, does, does CAPH advocate on behalf of specific local initiatives I'm thinking of? Um, oh, you don't? Not very often, no. I mean, we really try and focus on what's impacting the collective. Right, um, so, so you we advocate on a beverage tax or something like that? Well, I am an Oakland resident, so I may <laughs> advocate, but... <laughs> nice. This was very informative. Any, any, any last-minute comments, board? Um, we have uh, other people to, thank you. to hear from, so we thank you so much. It was very informative. Thank you for coming, really, and all your work for our, for our hospitals. Thank you.
have lunch. <laughs> you have to eat. So uh, we can uh, take a break and maybe uh, I think uh, lunch has been set up over on the side. Uh, yes, so so the complex care management uh, uh, rock stars are here. Uh, they were expecting to go on about 12.45 or so. So we can still take a break and get lunch and then uh, we can we can uh, convene uh, uh, in a few minutes after you start to to, to eat, but get a, get a little breather. Okay. All right, thanks. Break. We're coming back into open session um, after our, our lunch break and um, have some wonderful guests that have joined us. And so I'm going to let our CEO introduce those new members to us. Okay, uh, trustees as, and, and guests as we pull together. Um, I, it gives me great pleasure, actually, to introduce uh, uh, the next group of individuals. Uh, they are some of the jewels of, of AHS that you uh, often may hear about in their work, uh, uh, but may not have had the chance to meet them um, uh, up close and personal. So, so we're providing that, and we're doing it specifically within the context of today's discussion. So um, as you uh, have sort of gleaned from both... Um, the broader discussion around population health and uh, doing uh, risk stratification of a patient population and then uh, tailoring your services to those needs. Um, um, that the 1115 waiver, as Sarah was just talking about secondarily, is one effort in which we have been doing that. And in the past waiver, she pointed out some of the successes of some of those efforts that we put, including increase in um, um, ambulatory access, primary and specialty. She also talked about the Hope Center and the Care Transitions Program and their um, 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 very favorable results in working with a complex um, 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 polychronic condition patient population to reduce ED utilization. I think it was by 18% or somewhere in that neighborhood, as well as hospitalization. And these are the individuals who uh, play a big role in that program. So uh, Maya White, as uh, the director of the program, will um, provide some context here, which I believe you'll find is congruent with um, um, some of the things we've just talked about, and we'll speak to some of the things we might uh, be doing in the future. And then we brought two of our community health outreach workers, uh, DeAndre and Jimmy, uh, who will talk to you uh, uh, about some of their work specifically, and you'll get a video, uh, which is a very moving video, uh, so if it gets warm in here and your eyes start sweating, uh, that's okay. Uh, it happened to me too. Um, uh, with one patient in particular that DeAndre has been working uh, closely with. And before they start, I, I really want to just point out for Jimmy and, and DeAndre another really important uh, hallmark of, of how they came to us and are working with us that's, that you would love. And that is that both of these gentlemen um, were uh, uh, participants in the county's paramedic training program. Uh, and it's a partnership that we have with them where they provide uh, access to career training and development for members in our, our community uh, to, to work in the healthcare field. Uh, and then uh, we have, and I would say Maya, uh, still shamelessly to say these individuals have gotten great training and, you know, basic first, uh, uh, first aid and response and knowing the community and they come from the community, uh, we can use them as health outreach workers within our system. Those that don't go on to be paramedics uh, within our system and they are, have been an incredible and valuable asset as, as you'll hear from them today and see in some of the work they've done. But I'd like to turn it over to Maya to uh, share with you the content and we'll go from there. Yes. Um, so my purpose is to present the complex care programs in a little bit and also just particular. Okay. Uh, really to have Jimmy and DeAndre here because they are 
very much at the heart of this work and can, can really talk to you about the nuts and bolts of what it looks like for us to do complex care. Really, um, who's not here from our team is Dave Moskowitz. Dr. Moskowitz is our medical director, and he loves dorking out, he calls it, and he, and he dorks out, he produces all kinds of graphs and wonderful things. And this is one of the products that just shows um, uh, a subpopulation of 1,000 super utilizers. These are the top 5% of people who are in the hospital and emergency room. And that's really, for complex care, those are the people that we take care of. And we take care of people who are in an awful lot who are very vulnerable. And this is the setting in which we do it, which is our service area, and our goal is to serve 175,000 of people like this. And so part of why we're talking here is that we want to think about how what we've been learning in complex care can inform a larger effort in population health serving uh, people. This slide is another super dork um, product. It's um, 6,000 patients coming from uh, across clinics that belong to AHS showing um, really that, that line on the right is the, um, that would be the people with a lot of chronic conditions that we're working with. But if you look to the left, you've got the super utilizers in waiting. They're who are becoming sicker and who are gonna need this kind of, they're gonna need this kind of attention maybe, and maybe we can intervene at an earlier place. Um, we don't have so many of the patients that we have right now. Just to um, describe the components of the uh, complex care programs, we're three programs that started um, all with our own little grants that are now um, pulled together to, with, into one program um, that's where we're doing a lot of collaboration and cross-training and efficient program that it was when it was three kind of duct taped together. Um, Care Transitions provides uh, an intensive team-based um, interventions for pa patients with certain diagnoses, COPD, CHF, and HIV, and occasionally other patients that a doctor might say, please help with. Um, and we also, uh, Care Transitions also um, does case management for a 10-bed medical respite unit in a uh, homeless shelter. So they, uh, we have our nurses, one of our nurses go there twice a week to take care of uh, 10 men in that, in that shelter. And then um, the Homeless Coordination Office serves um, really high-risk patients. We use a risk screening tool to um, determine who they are. They're patients who's been in the hospital four or five times in a year, who have um, three or more chronic conditions and, and are on quite a few meds. Um, of course, these patients, when they're also homeless, um, are you know, doubly at high risk. And we've just added, uh, we're not quite there yet, another uh, we have one new community outreach worker for Eastmont that's helping that team. They are actually serving patients who are a little bit less at risk, um, who come from the Eastmont office. Uh, it's a HRSA grant that's supporting two new community outreach positions there, and they'll be working um, with patients with um, substance use and homelessness. Excuse me. Do you ask? Um you can finish. I, yep. I shouldn't have interrupted you, but I just wonder how many staff are in, on each of these So uh, Care Transitions right now has one, two, three, six, and then Homeless Coordination now has five, 
And clinic-based has two right now. That's, that's that would be, I feel like I'm missing somebody, but we're around 17, and I think. Staff, not, not physicians, but nurses and social workers? We're, yeah, we're nurses, community outreach workers. Community and outreach workers. We, and, our, yeah, we, and we have two social workers. One position is just about to be Thanks. filled. So we're not huge. Um, and we've been building out the community outreach uh, feature because really so much of the work to be done is best done by community outreach workers. Uh, the clinic-based complex care uh, is, is serving K6 clinic and it's mostly done, uh, the patients are selected by referral by physicians and they're uh, run through a screening tool. They're at the highest level of risk. Uh, and um, they have a, a nurse and a community outreach worker that work together to do um, a lot of extra help for those patients. So it's, a, it's very much a team approach. Um, it's by phone, at clinic, at entitlement offices, in homes, shelters, the street, et cetera, where just kind of we go where the patient is and where we can best serve them. And... Um, our priorities are to, to teach patients about their chronic conditions so that they can manage them the best way possible um, and to navigate the medical care that they need so that they kind of know where to go. We, we do, depending on the patient's um, ability, we might even be reminding them about all their appointments or even putting them in a cab to get to an appointment if that's what's needed. Um, and uh, we do a lot of, every patient gets a kind of very, careful screening of what their resources are so that we can identify any obstacles that are interfering with their getting health care. Um, so we work on housing. We have social workers to do some, uh, and social work students also do some brief counseling, motivational interviewing. Our community outreach workers primarily do the substance use assessments and referral to treatment. And we do a lot of mental health referrals as well. Um, I have one more question. Sorry, uh, what, the um, community outreach workers are—is this DeAndre and Jimmy? Or, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're—are they all um, paramedics or? or um, um, there, we have a couple of community outreach workers who have been sort of long-standing AHS employees, and then uh, Jimmy and DeAndre are, and Irvin. The three are from the EMS Corps. We're just today are hiring another one from EMS Corps. And um, hope to hire a third one from the health coaching program from the county. So um, they all have some clinical background. They're yes. Not, thanks. Yes. And um, we're also really working to develop the sort of clinical training for the uh, community outreach workers. They have a good start. But um, Dr. Moskowitz and I are looking at a curriculum that um, uh, covers quite a number of different chronic conditions, and uh, Dr. Moskowitz is going to be doing workshops with the community outreach workers on how to do outreach uh, covering, covering those conditions. So we'll continue to be building the uh, knowledge. Uh, but they come with good knowledge. It's a really good start, and they come with a kind of professionalism that's very desirable. Um, and we work on building. I missed the question. Um, Trustee Jensen asked how many how many individuals were within each of those programs, and I think you said five and six and right. and four. So how many how many individuals totally are are supporting not the re, not the people at the end of a referral, but 
um, how many people are in fact involved in this program that are supporting the 160 to 170,000 needy people? They're not supporting 170,000 needy people. Um, we are only well, you, with that's the, the total population yeah. that, that is of need. Right. Yeah, there, at least it's a, not the total per, population that's it, of need um, for complex was that, was care. Every, that was everybody, that's in, everybody. The, so, in the county? Yeah. Right. So those that need complex care, certainly we don't have enough people oh, I'm to, sorry. to serve. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, her point was it, uh, what we do for these people. Mm -hmm. uh, these people represent a very small subset of the overall mm -hmm. community. I get services throughout the safety net. So it wasn't that. So the thousand, the thousand people. Right. Uh, so yeah, there. Yeah. And actually, no, no, how many people? How many patients are actively enrolled in any one of your, so, your complex care um, programs? Right now, care transitions. I guess saw about uh, six hundred and fifty patients okay. in one year period, mm -hmm. and then the the whole. Uh, the, um, I, I want to say Hope Center because that's what we used to call it, but the, right. uh, the uh, clinic-based mm -hmm. complex care and uh, homeless have. I guess somewhere around 60 patients between them. Mm -hmm. They are much longer term, as you can imagine, because many times when you start with a patient who's homeless, you're starting with someone who maybe doesn't have an ID, right. any clothes, any food, you know, a house. Maybe so you're building over time. You're building. Well, I, was, I was trying to understand ratios the, between the number of people who are providing s services and mm -hmm. help related to the number of people that are there those services too. Is there a ratio here? I mean, the way to, to, to think of it is um, this uh, coordination carries about close to 40 patients with a team of three. Um, uh, care transitions, each, each nurse would have somewhere 27 to 30 patients at a time with a pretty rapid change of patients. And um, right now, I think Hope has about 30. It's, there's a limit to how many patients you can have with these. We, it's a little bit difficult sometimes to find just the right mix. One of the challenges is that um, sometimes one patient completely falls apart, and sure, you've got sure. suddenly I, I, you've got your day made. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, I really wasn't yeah. trying to yeah, to no, make judgments about idea. it. I was just trying to understand yeah, yeah. the the dynamics. Thank yeah, you. Sure. Um, Excuse me, I have my arrow in the wrong place on by community health worker. Um, but just this is uh, this slide is just to address what would be some insights and innovations that complex care can lend to the larger effort um, to do population health. And one is kind of the way we coordinate care. We, we do a lot more care coordination than's traditionally done. Um, our understanding of the social determinants of health. Our uh, focus on substance use disorders, which has been a big uh, part of our uh, project, which we didn't know we were going to have to do at the beginning, uh, but it's uh, a major piece of work with um, all, all three programs. And then the use of uh, community health workers and health coaches, which is what brought you out here, because I wanted you just to kind of hear uh, what they do. And then tracking alternative touches and non-billable visits, the, a lot of the work we do uh, it is its economy of it is that it saves money to the system by preventing unnecessary care and we were just talking about one patient that we've worked with who was in the ER daily and if we had the money that he spent in ambulance rides 
we could have bought a, a Maserati and a butler to chauffeur him around. He probably, he, he probably could pay for our program for a year, maybe two years. Um, so th these are, um, once we are in a more capitated arrangement, our services will uh, beneficial financially right now, not yet. But, um, but um, Jimmy, talk a little bit about what, just basically what community outreach workers do, so you have a, a sense of that. Along with trust building um, with our patients, either first, uh, patient enrollment and assessment of resource needs, identifying uh, what the patient goals are uh, as soon as we enroll them so we could get started right away before they leave the hospital. Helping patients get help in navigating bureaucracy um, within insurance companies and just navigating the health system to do that. Meeting patients for appointments and encouraging self um, here. We meet them for appointments. We meet them at their appointments just to make sure that they're getting the, um, the services that they need uh, and voicing their opinions to their doctors and things like that. With applications for housing, food stamps, SSI, um, you know, um, paratransit, making sure that they have the resources in the community that they'll be able to be, become more self-sufficient in their health. Taking in with home visits and uh, telephone calls, uh, we try to do a home visit with every patient uh, that we have, but it's not, uh, with our bandwidth, it's not possible, but um, we try to at least give them a home visit, make sure their medications are um, correct when they get home, and co consistently checking in by phone calls just to check if they need anything from us. Medication reconciliations, uh, we do that in the home or wherever they are. If they bring their medications with, with them, we go over it with them, make sure they understand what they're taking, why they're taking it, and how to take it. Um, health coaching around diet, um, we go into the homes, check out their pantries, see what's in their pantries. If they have enough food to eat, we get them connected to services around the county. Um, med medication adherence, making sure they're taking their medications on time and regularly. Substance abuse treatment, substance abuse intervention and referral. We do a lot of that with uh, our population at Highland. They come in with a lot of um, secondary two substance abuse disorders, so uh, we intervene, do the motivational interviewing with them, find out what their goals are, what they would like to do, and make those interventions and referrals for them. Troubleshooting obstacles to self-care, identifying barriers that they might have uh, in being uh, self-sufficient in their homes, you know, child care, whatever it is that people come with with their social needs. Um, and report, and we report to the teams uh, when a patient has worsening symptoms or medical problems that our outreach workers aren't, you know, um, entitled to do for these patients. We go back to the nurses and share that information to so we're all on the same page with the patient and continuity of care. Um, <clears throat> what do you do when they don't have a home? So, um, when they don't have a home, we uh, we find other options like boarding cares or shelters that are available depending on the person's income. We provide we provide resources around housing that they're able to afford. And find any then if they're willing to go into the shelter or if they're willing to go into our respite program or ELCP, we allow that. But if they're not willing to participate with the resources that we provide them, then it's their. Are you asking? Do we have? No, we do not. Housing would be our main priority. Uh, there's not enough housing in our community. The markets are rising. So if we were to have um, 
possibly extra shelters or just a, a, a avenue of um, getting these patients into housing, stable housing, will be able to provide all these extra resources so they'll become more self-sufficient in their health. Um, uh, to me, yeah, I, I, I got used to the, the resources that we have, so I use the tools that that's available to me, but I could use a lot more, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we we definitely have I, I could brainstorm about a lot of different tools that we need but you know <laughs> right I mean, I'm, I'm really curious that when when I know I know the homeless population fairly well through my other work and and um, dealing with encampments and and access to food and and I mean I see uh, pushing around diet and, mm -hmm. and I know that there there's probably more food available to the homeless than there are homes mm -hmm, uh, because yeah. there are a lot of locations where they can get a hot meal or free food that's packaged, right. Operation Dignity, St. Vincent de Paul, et cetera. Um, um, how, how, how do those food options fit in with, with your diet training? I mean, do, do you find your clients are, are listening and able to actually take your advice or do you feel that, especially with the homeless, I'm thinking, that, are, that don't want to go to a shelter because maybe they have a dog or they don't like the conditions. Mm -hmm. you know, they're getting their meals on the fly at, at these different locations. I find that there's a, a saturation uh, with, your, with the information you're providing. Are they, are they utilizing it? Is, it? is it having a noticeable impact? And, and how do you measure that you know, in your own anecdotal way or, or as, a, as a program? I find that it is having an impact. Um, we use a lot of different services like uh, emergency food banks and Project Open Hand, Meals on Wheels. Depends on the person and their housing uh, situation. But they do uh, come back to us and thank us for, you know, getting con them connected to CalFresh if they don't have it or, you know, uh, getting connected to Project Open Hand, which is a delivery service to their homes or they'll be able to uh, go pick up groceries from uh, those, those services. So it, it definitely makes a difference in their lives that they uh, actually have at least one uh, meal a day, one meal a day, because I enroll patients and they let us know um, we don't have anything to eat at home. How how do we how are we supposed to you know go about this? And we provide as much resources as we can so they'll be able to get themselves to the, those pantries that's that's open, giving them those uh, numbers to call just to reach out to those services that are out there. But um, we just got limited to. Um, Project Open Hand has a waiting list now that we weren't, you know, so it's kind of, you know, limiting our services and kind of uh, resources there, but. Andre's going to talk a little bit about just an example of a patient that would be kind of a, a, a good opportunity for you to see kind of what the work is. And then we're going to show a video of this patient and not how he's doing now. A patient that we've been, I've actually been working with him, I want to say for close to a year and a half now. Uh, his name is Thaddeus. He's 45 years old. Uh, he has diagnosis of COPD. He has a pacemaker. History also suffers from osteoarthritis, and he's wheelchair bound. I'll talk briefly about some of the challenges that uh, Thaddeus faced, as well as how we work to remove some of those barriers. Thaddeus definitely suffered from homelessness. He uh, chronically homeless early on in our interventions. He was living in uninhabitable dwellings. He was living in he we you know he was in crack houses on the streets, etc. Um, as far as transportation, lack of transportation, phone, and adequate food, he had no transportation to and from any of his medical appointments. He had no phone to coordinate any type of care, and he did not have access to adequate food. Help the patient to sign up for paratransit for transportation to and from his appointments. Help the patient to sign up for a free cell phone through the Lifeline program so that we can coordinate care with his providers. And then we also connected him to meal delivery services 
because diet was a big part of his of his uh, definitely suffered from some uh, undiagnosed mental health issues as well as depression after working he was working with a mental health provider that could not meet his needs but did not either because they were too taxed or whatever the reason may be they never ramped up the services at you know to a level that would actually be therapeutic for him and so we referred back to access and we advocated for him and got him established with a level one provider and got him connected with uh, intensive mental health case management. And we supplemented that with some medical case management. Uh, he definitely had a substance use disorder. The patient had been uh, using crack cocaine for over 10 years. And uh, <clears throat> given the patient's chronic homelessness and then longstanding addiction to crack cocaine, uh, we used the ASAM criteria and uh, figured out that he, his, he would best be placed in a sober living environment with outpatient uh, substance abuse treatment. And so we uh, made that referral and we ended up sending him to a sober living and outpatient facility out in uh, Manteca. And uh, he definitely had a lack of uh, trust in providers and the system of care. And so I literally accompanied this patient to every primary and specialty appointment and worked you know, as a representative of our system to kind of reverse that distrust in the system. And once again, he had no family support, no friends, the, the negative influences in his life that he used with and things like that. And he had no, no support out in the community. And also he was feeling neglected because he was very close to his church community. But since he got deeper into his addiction and kind of alienated himself from that community, he's been feeling the need to reconnect. And so we connected the, the patient with the uh, Alameda County Care Alliance, which is a uh, church-based social program that provides advocates that uh, outreach to patients and they help them navigate systems such as housing, benefits, entitlement. But the most important thing that we felt for Thaddeus while he was working on his sobriety was that they provided that spiritual and that community support for those positive in front of our nurses, Lily is in the video as well. Oh no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much. This, this was really, the work you do is so very important. Um, I have a question. In, in your encounters with the various people that you are helping, um, you know, I have always been a bit frustrated that so much of the work that we do here, that you do, that cities do, et cetera, tend to be at the, what I would say at the back end of of the patient or the human being. So I'm wondering, are there in your encounters, have you encountered or have you noticed one or two things that had those ingredients or those pieces been in their life earlier, would it have made a difference? You know, I'm thinking of education, job, uh, parent, different parent, money, uh, what, whatever you, you might. Is there, a, is there a theme that comes through here that you've noticed that if we'd had, if those things had happened when they were 12 or 15 or 9, would it have made a difference? Have you encountered any of that? Yeah, actually on several fronts I could say, you know, for one, with the patients actually dealing with the, um, 
You're, you're really referring them mostly yeah. because of the health issues and certainly yeah. certainly had their diet changed or, yeah, you know, somebody had attention earlier, the health issues would be there. So I'm trying to think of more in the sociological yeah. aspect of, of the lives that you encounter. Are there things that that agencies like ours, you know, we're more specific for healthcare, but but cities or schools or government agencies or even just citizens, it, are are there things that would have made a difference in the lives of these people earlier on? Definitely, I definitely believe so. For one, you know, on the health on the on the health uh, aspect of it, I can definitely speak to you know toward one of Jimmy's patients who kind of early on didn't really know what hypertension was, didn't know that it could lead to, you know, it can ramp up and lead to kidney problems or things like that. And now that's actually another video we did, but he's actually now a dialysis patient. And he actually says, you know, if I just knew the importance of a kidney, it would have changed my life. Because now he's dependent on going to dialysis a couple times a week. You know, that's one, one of the aspects as far as the medical goes where just a little touch early on would have gone a long way, saved a lot of money, and made his quality of life a lot better. And then more from a social determinants uh, standpoint, I would have to say, you know, broke breeds broken, I believe. And, you know, from the person who has longstanding trauma from seeing someone killed, or from someone who's been abused as a child, you know, just having those resources in the community goes a long way. You know, I've dealt with, with women who've been you know, misused by, by, by men, you know, starting as early as, you know, toddler years. And me as a male, I have to kind of work through, and I've even had to sit with her and say, you know, when people say it's great to have you here, it doesn't mean that they want you sexually or anything like that. It means that they're trying to welcome you into their environment and, you know, just things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, where had these things been addressed a lot earlier, I think that people's lives would have turned out a lot different we've been talking about lately is you know, if you go to the K6 clinic don't see any black men there if you go down to the ER it's full of black men and I think that is speaks to something that we can do which is to see how we can bring black men into our clinics or into healthcare early on because they are waiting until they have a disaster often before they'll come in and that's, I think that's something that we have a real chance to influence, and that it, it, we just really need to think about it. Um, talked about if you want to find a date, you go to K6 because there's no men, just women. <laughs> I have a question, about, and that's kind of a good segue. So when you go to the ED and say there's four of those men are homeless and they have. CHF or COPD, um, uh, and they're all substance abusers. How do you, given the limited resources, you're not going to the ED every, you're not just stationed there, obviously, but how, how does that referral take place? How does the ED look at those five, four or five men at any one time and say, okay, let's call um, right, community, yeah. community health? Yeah. Right now, the ED doesn't have a complex care program. We get our patients from the, actually the inpatient unit. We did a, a pilot where we thought oh, it, the ED really needs this. So actually, DeAndre and I and Jimmy and uh, another nurse, we decided to do it. And it just wore us out. We, we couldn't keep it up because those patients 
were so high need, we weren't getting our other things done, and it, it felt like we just couldn't. But we're certainly going to ask for this um, going forward because um, it's a great place to intervene. Yes, team, I, a team of like maybe three community outreach workers. It, it might not even take a nurse because they're getting some medical care right there, but to connect them and resource them and follow them for a few weeks, I think that would be a, a really good thing. And I think that what you said about those men not coming to K6, which is the primary care mm -hmm. medical clinic um, at Highland, but that's not meaning that they don't come for medical care. They're in the ED with your STDs or back aches or baboons or whatever, and they have high blood pressure, mm -hmm. and we're not addressing it there. Right. And we're saying, oh, you better go to your doctor, you have high blood pressure, but if we catch them there, mm -hmm. so I know that's not exactly your program, but mm -hmm. it would be a We've actually been in talks, you know, about that because it's inevitable, you know, it's kind of a continuum where you're either gonna access the medical care routinely, or you're gonna be that high utilizer, you know, I mean, being dialyzed or what may have you. And so we've definitely been talking about, you know, how to reach those people early, and I think that visible in the community. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was just going to sort of add some additional context here. So, so it's always, I, I'm always mindful of when we talk about population health and sort of aligning uh, uh, the, the incentives of population health for the types of outcomes and delivery model you want. That almost sometimes seems like uh, there is this perverse incentive to churn. And quite honestly, in healthcare, that sometimes is the case. I think in a public health setting, that's not nearly as much the motivation for what happens. So we're not saying, oh, we won't provide complex care management for patients in the ED because then they won't come back to the ED and we'll lose that volume or they won't be admitted and we'll lose that volume. We are not hurting for volume per se. No. What we're saying is that, just to, to Maya's point, when you, when, if you can work with a partner like a health plan to say, give me a capitation at X amount, and allow me to manage this population, I may actually be able to invest in additional resources for a model that I know would work that I can't do right now because I, I'm, I'm stuck in this sort of uh, vortex of I gotta provide the service to get the reimbursement to then provide more services to get more reimbursement. So I'm just mm -hmm. trying to like, we're trying to shift all of that, not because there are these perverse incentives to make more, in fact, uh, you know, there's a possibility you saw as um, Dr. Katz presented uh, that, you know, utilization could go up in some areas or this mm -hmm. can take a while longitudinally to do, but you need to shift the, the free system and be able to invest in that shift, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and your reimbursement model in a way that actually allows for more of this to actually happen. Right. Um, so, 1,096 high utilization patients, about 600 of them. About <clears throat> Could we look at their utilization rate before and after they received your prior and the year mm -hmm. after? We have done that. Um, you have? Yeah. That was part of the data that Sarah shared with you. So that the, the oh. consolidation of the complex care management program, uh, if you look at her slide deck, I think it is, uh, which one was it? Um, it was one of those that said the success of the uh, 2010 waiver, and it said that the complex care program reduced it. Um, uh, ED utilization for a high-risk population by 18% and inpatient utilization by some other percentage. I can't remember the exact number. Oh, okay. But that's, that's the result of the work that this group is doing. They've recently did a little, um, I guess it maybe four or five months ago, did a little um, dorking out session where he took a look at both care transitions and uh, 
clinic-based patients and just looked at their number of admissions the year before we in NAFTA, and for both programs, there's about a 20% reduction in uh, admissions. Great. We'll do Maria and then and then and then actually Kinkini was first. Oh, I'm sorry, Kinkini, please. Thanks. Valuable work, and I think as we that that early intervention and building the community resiliency, well-being, and as we evolve and redesign our own health system, we're better at doing that so that it will be our young men, our brothers. And how could we look um, better volunteers? I'm, I'm almost envisioning that we need a Peace Corps, but it would be Health Corps. <laughs> Can I, I wanted to turn. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going with your question, but I have an answer directly okay. to do, do you think it's feasible with the idea? Because from what you've seen, you might want to tell us, oh, that's not doable. They really need to be skilled in nursing, or they have to have a social work. I'm already seeing the great answer mm -hmm. that maybe that's not the case. What would you say, at a bare minimum, seniors in high school volunteering, or even a, a freshman in college? At the bare say? minimum, I think that all we need to get on the road to success is people that have a knowledge of the community, of the resources that are out there, mm -hmm. and someone who's motivated to help inspire change on a person-by-person -person basis. I think that, at the bare minimum, would be all that we would but need. And is there training to bring someone on board beyond what they are? We've done quite a lot. I know I do uh, training for the incoming childs on the ASAM criteria, okay. which is okay. placement for substance okay. abuse. I do training in motivational interviewing. I kind of have, like, piles and piles of uh, entitlement benefits, applications, things like that, that I train people up on how to, uh, how to navigate those systems and how to advocate for the patient in, in various situations, things like applying for disability insurance, how to interface with the worker, you know, how to pull medical records, get them to them, because a lot of people don't know. If you, we, we pull the medical records, we can get someone disability within two months, three months. Yeah other than a year and a half or things like that. Yes. Trustee Hernandez, actually, this goes to your question and uh, I think uh, Trustee Banerjee's uh, question, but a trustee partner, uh, um, head of the foundation, Deborah, just sent this over to me uh, to say, you might want to mention the Highland Health Advocates Program. Yes, I was going to do that. Total layup. <laughs> I and I thought Maya was going to do that as well. <laughs> Well done, Ms. Barnes. Well, bar well done. Actually, Maya, if you want to talk about Highland Health Advocates, it's a volunteer core that we're now turning into AHS health advocates, uh, so, so we can talk about how it came about and, mm -hmm. you know, what, what so we do So the Highland there. Health Advocates was started actually by a resident in the ER, mm -hmm. and it's um, right now, I, I think, about 130 volunteers. They're mostly um, Berkeley, Kyle East Bay uh, students who are kind of in, a, in the middle of, you know, they finished college or halfway through, and they're medical school or legal profession or whatever, and they need a, a period of they commit to a year of uh, half day and um, basically a resource hub for AHS. So a physician can basically kind of write a prescription for, I need a health advocate to give, get food for this patient. So even patients that aren't ours. And we've used them. And actually, we just interviewed a person who would be shared. They'd be half time working with health advocates and half time with us doing resources around housing. So we're, we work pretty closely with them. And they're not, they're not going into the community. Their work is a little different. But there's a whole range of things that need to happen. So that kind of volunteer is really helpful. Uh, Our day-to-day -day work, they definitely they increase our bandwidth. 
they make it so that we could see more people because you know they're kind of stationed in the hospital and so if I have a patient that has a crazy share of cost I can you know go over to the SK you know can you guys get to working on this for me contact with the med legal referral make a referral over to for example East Bay Community Law Center and so they're taking care of that legwork while I'm doing the rapport building the sitting with the patient and you know things like that and so it definitely allows us to extend our reach and so we definitely see the benefits of having the health advocates as well. They're really great. Yeah. I was going to ask if there were other questions, and not then I was going to. You're expanding it. It's so. going from HSS. That's our that's our plan uh, now. Unfortunately, uh, actually, when started it, who reminded? Uh, unfortunately, he's going to Harbor, where I just left. <laughs> so uh, he's going to be in the yard ER dock there. We're we're losing him, but the program and his legacy for this incredible work will. So I did tell him he's not gone yet. He may not like me, but I may try to keep Did you want to add something? It speaks to, again, in close partnership with the foundation to frameworks to further. Um, uh, so very much for coming. We appreciate you taking your Friday out and uh, wish you for your work. Thank you. Uh, Del Vecchio has asked if I might, and probably because of the luggage after lunch kind of thing that we go into a team building that I'm actually going um, So what I'd like to have you do, and surprisingly, everybody in the room is going to participate in this one. Uh, so uh, break, we're coming back into open session um, after our, our lunch break and um, have some wonderful guests that have joined us. And so I'm going to let our CEO introduce those new members to us. Okay, uh, trustees as, and, and guests as we pull together, um, I, it gives me great pleasure actually to introduce uh, uh, the next group of individuals. Uh, they are some of the jewels of, of AHS that you uh, often may hear about in their work, uh, uh, but may not have had the chance to meet them um, uh, up close and personal. So, so we're providing that and we're doing it specifically within the context of today's discussion. So. Um, as you uh, have sort of gleaned from both um, the broader discussion around population health and uh, doing uh, risk stratification of a patient population and then uh, tailoring your services to those needs, um, um, that the 1115 waiver, as Sarah was just talking about secondarily, is one effort in which we have been doing that. And in the past waiver, she pointed out some of the successes of some of those efforts that we put, including increase in um, um, ambulatory access, primary and specialty. She also talked about the Hope Center and the Care Transitions Program and their um, 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 very favorable results in working with a complex um, 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 polychronic condition patient population to reduce ED utilization. I think it was by 18% or somewhere in that neighborhood, as well as hospitalization. And these are the individuals who uh, play a big role in that program. So uh, Maya White, as uh, the director of the program, will um, provide some context here, which I believe you'll find is congruent with um, um, some of the things we've just talked about. And we'll speak to some of the things we might uh, doing in the future. And then we brought two of our community health outreach workers, uh, DeAndre and Jimmy, uh, who will talk to you uh, uh, about some of their work specifically, and you'll get a video, uh, which is a very moving video, uh, so if it gets warm in here and your eyes start sweating, uh, that's okay. Uh, it happened to me too. 
um, uh, with one patient in particular that DeAndre has been working uh, closely with. And before they start, I, I really want to just point out for Jimmy and, and DeAndre another really important uh, hallmark of, of how they came to us and are working with us that's, that you would love. And that is that both of these gentlemen uh, were uh, uh, participants in the county's paramedic training program. Uh, and it's a partnership that we have with them where they provide uh, access to career training and development for members in our, our community uh, to, to work in the healthcare field. Uh, and then uh, we have, and I would say Maya, uh, still shamelessly to say these individuals have gotten great training and, you know, basic first, uh, first aid and response and knowing the community and they come from the community, uh, we can use them as health outreach workers within our system, those that don't go on to be paramedics uh, within our system. And they are, have been an incredible and valuable asset, as, as you'll hear from them today and see in some of the work they've done. But I'd like to turn it over to Maya to uh, share with you the content and we'll go from there. Yes. Um, so my purpose is to present the complex care programs in a little bit and also just particularly, okay. uh, really to have Jimmy and DeAndre here because they are very much at the heart of this work and can, can really talk to you about the nuts and bolts of what it looks like for us to do complex care. Really, um, who's not here from our team is Dave Moskowitz. Dr. Moskowitz is our medical director, and he loves dorking out, he calls it. And he, and he dorks out, he produces all kinds of graphs and wonderful things. And this is one of the products that just shows um, a, a subpopulation of 1,000 super utilizers. These are the top 5% of people who are in the hospital and emergency room. And that's really for complex care. Those are the people that we take care of. And we take care of people who are in an awful lot who are very vulnerable. And this is the setting in which we do it, which is our service area. And our goal is to serve 175,000 of people like this. And so Part of why we're talking here is that we want to think about how what we've been learning in complex care can inform a larger effort in population health serving uh, people. This slide is another super dork um, product. It's um, 6,000 patients coming from uh, across clinics that belong to AHS showing um, really that, that line on the right is the, um, that would be the people with a lot of chronic conditions that we're working with. But if you look to the left, you've got the super utilizers in waiting. They're patients who are becoming sicker and who are gonna need this kind of, they're gonna need this kind of attention maybe, and maybe we can intervene at an earlier place. Um, we don't have so many of the patients that we have right now. Just to um, describe the components of the uh, complex care programs, we're three programs that started um, all with our own little grants that are now um, pulled together to, with, into one program um, that's where we're doing a lot of collaboration and cross-training and efficient program than it was when it was three kind of duct taped together. Um, care Transitions provides uh, an intensive team-based um, interventions for pa patients with certain diagnoses, COPD, CHF, and HIV, and occasionally other patients that a doctor might say, please help with. Um, we also, uh, Care Transitions also um, does case management for a 10-bed medical respite unit in a uh, homeless shelter. So they, uh, we have our nurses 
one of our nurses go there twice a week to take care of uh, 10 men in that, in that shelter. And then um, the Homeless Coordination Office serves um, really high-risk patients. We use a risk screening tool to um, determine who they are. They're patients who've been in the hospital four or five times in a year, who have um, three or more chronic conditions and, and are on quite a few meds. Um, of course, these patients, when they're also homeless, um, are you know, doubly at high risk. And we've just added, uh, we're not quite there yet, another, uh, we have one new community outreach worker for Eastmont that's helping that team. They are actually serving patients who are a little bit less at risk, um, who come from the Eastmont office. Uh, it's a HRSA grant that's supporting two new community outreach positions there, and they'll be working um, with patients with um, substance use and homelessness. Do you ask, um, you can finish, I, yep. I shouldn't have interrupted you, but I just wonder how many staff are in, on each of these So uh, Care Transitions right now has one, two, three, like six, and then Homeless Coordination now has five, and Clinic Based has two right now. That's, that's that would be, I feel like I'm missing somebody, but we're around 17, I think. Staff. Not not physicians, but nurses and social workers. We're yeah, we're nurses, community outreach workers, community um, outreach workers, we, and our, yeah, we when we have two social workers, one position is just about to be Thanks. filled. So we're not huge, um, and we've been building out the community outreach uh, feature because really so much of the work to be done is best done by community outreach workers. Uh, the clinic-based complex care. Uh, is, is serving K6 clinic, and it's mostly done, uh, the patients are selected by referral by physicians, and they're uh, run through a screening tool. They're at the highest level of risk, uh, and um, they have a, a nurse and a community outreach worker that work together to um, there are a lot of extra help for those patients. So it's, a, it's very much a team approach. Um, it's by phone, at clinic, at entitlement offices, in homes, shelters, the street, et cetera. We're just kind of, we go where the patient is and where we can best serve them. And um, our priorities are to, to teach patients about their chronic conditions so that they can manage them the best way possible um, and to navigate the medical care that they need so that they kind of know where to go. We, we do, depending on the patient's um, ability, we might even be reminding them about all their appointments or even putting them in a cab to get to an appointment if that's what's needed. Um, and uh, we do a lot of, every patient gets a kind of very careful screening of what their resources are so that we can identify any obstacles that are interfering with their getting health care. Um, so we work on housing, we have social workers to do some, uh, and social work students also do some brief counseling, motivational interviewing. Our community outreach workers primarily do the substance use assessments and referral to treatment. And we do a lot of mental health referrals as well. Um, I have one more question, sorry. But what, the um, community outreach workers are, is this DeAndre and Jimmy? Or, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're, are they all, um, Paramedics or, or um... Um, there, we have a couple of community outreach workers who have been sort of long-standing AHS employees, and then uh, Jimmy and DeAndre are and Irvin. The three are from the EMS Corps. 
we're just today are hiring another one from EMS Corps, and um, hope to hire a third one from the health coaching program from the county. So um, they're all have some clinical background. They're yes. Thanks. Yes, and. Um, we're also really working to develop the sort of clinical training for the uh, community outreach workers. They have a good start, but um, Dr. Moskowitz and I are looking at a curriculum that um, uh, covers quite a number of different chronic conditions, and uh, Dr. Moskowitz is going to be doing shops with the community outreach workers on how to do outreach uh, covering, covering those conditions. So we'll continue to be building the uh, knowledge. Uh, but they come with good knowledge. It's a really good start. And they come with a kind of professionalism that's very desirable. Um, and we work on building. I missed the question. Um, Trustee Jensen asked how many, how many individuals work within each of those programs, and I think you said five and six and, right. and four. So how many, how many individuals totally are, are supporting, not the, re, not the people at the end of a referral, but um, how many people are in fact involved in this program that are supporting the 160 to 170,000 needy people? They're not supporting 170,000 needy people. Um, we are only well, you, that's the total population yeah. that, that is of need. Right. Yeah, there, at least it's a, not the total per, population that's a, of need um, for complex was that, was care. Every, that was everybody, that's in, everybody. The, so, in the county. Yeah. Right. So those that need complex care, certainly we don't have enough people oh, I'm to, sorry. to serve. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, her point was uh, what we do for these people. Uh, these people represent a very small subset of the overall mm -hmm. community. I get services throughout the safety net. So it wasn't that. So the thousand, the thousand people. Uh, so yeah, there. Yeah. And a actually, thousand. how many people? How many patients are actively enrolled in any one of your, so, your complex care um, programs? Right now, care transitions. I guess about uh, six hundred and fifty patients okay. in one year period, mm -hmm. and then the the whole. Uh, the, um, I, I want to say Hope Center because that's what we used to call it, but the, right. uh, the uh, clinic-based mm -hmm. complex care and uh, homeless have. I guess somewhere around 60 patients between them. Mm -hmm. They are much longer term, as you can imagine, because many times when you start with a patient who's homeless, you're starting with someone who maybe doesn't have an ID, right. any clothes, any food, you know, a house. No, so you're building over time. You're building. Well, I, was, I was trying to understand ratios the, between the number of people who are providing services and mm -hmm. help related to the number of people that are there those services too. Is there a ratio here? I mean, the way to, to, to think of it is um, this uh, coordination carries about close to 40 patients with a team of three. Um, uh, care transitions, each, each nurse would have somewhere 27 to 30 patients at a time with a pretty rapid change of patients. And um, right now, I think Hope has about 30. It's, there's a limit to how many patients you can have with these. We, it's a little bit difficult sometimes to find just the right mix. I know the challenges is that um, sometimes one patient completely falls apart, and sure, you've got sure. suddenly I, I, you've got your day made. Yeah, you know? I, I really wasn't right. trying to yeah, to no, make judgments about idea. it. I was just trying to understand yeah, yeah. the the dynamics. Thank yeah, you. Sure. Um, 
Excuse me, I have my arrow in the wrong place down by community health work. Um, but just this is uh, this slide is just to address what would be some insights and innovations that complex care can lend to the larger effort um, to do population health. And one is kind of the way we coordinate care. We, we, we do a lot more care coordination than it's traditionally done. Um, our understanding of the social determinants of health. Our uh, focus on substance use disorders, which has been a big uh, part of our uh, project, which we didn't know we were going to have to do at the beginning. Uh, but it's uh, a major piece of work with um, all, all three programs. And then the use of uh, community health workers and health coaches, which is what brought you out here, because I wanted you just to kind of hear uh, what they do. And then tracking alternative touches and non-billable visits. The, a lot of the work we do uh, it is its economy of it is that it saves money to the system by preventing unnecessary care and we were just talking about one patient that we've worked with who was in the ER daily and if we had the money that he spent in ambulance rides we could have bought him a Maserati and a butler to chauffeur him around he probably he, he probably could pay for our program for a year maybe two years um, so th these are, um, once we are in a more capitated arrangement, our services will uh, beneficial financially right now, not yet. But, um, but um, Jimmy, talk a little bit about what, just basically what community outreach workers do, so you have a, a sense of that. Along with trust building um, with our patients, either uh, patient enrollment and assessment of resource needs, identifying uh, what the patient goals are uh, as soon as we enroll them so we could get started right away before they leave the hospital. Helping patients get help in navigating bureaucracy um, within insurance companies and just navigating the health system to do that. Meeting patients for appointments and encouraging self um, here. We meet them for appointments. We meet them at their appointments just to make sure that they're getting the, um, the services that they need uh, and voicing their opinions to their doctors and things like that. With applications for housing, food stamps, SSI, um, you know, um, paratransit, making sure that they have the resources in the community that they'll be able to be become more self-sufficient in their health. Checking in with home visits and uh, telephone calls, uh, we try to do a home visit with every patient uh, that we have, but it's not, uh, with our bandwidth, it's not possible, but um, we try to at least give them a home visit, make sure their medications are um, correct when they get home, and co consistently checking in by phone calls just to check if they need anything from us. Medication reconciliations, uh, we do that in the home or wherever they are. If they bring their medications with, with them, we go over it with them, make sure they understand what they're taking, why they're taking it, and how to take it. Um, health coaching around diet, um, we go into the homes, check out their pantries, see what's in their pantries. If they have enough food to eat, we get them connected to services around the county. Um, med medication adherence, making sure they're taking their medications on time and regularly. Substance abuse treatment, substance abuse intervention and referral. We do a lot of that with uh, our population at Highland. They come in with a lot of um, secondary two substance abuse disorders, so uh, we intervene, do the motivational interviewing with them, find out what their goals are, what they would like to do, and make those interventions and referrals. 
for them, troubleshooting obstacles to self-care, identifying barriers that they might have uh, in being uh, self-sufficient in their homes, you know, child care, whatever it is that people come with with their social needs. Um, and report, and we report to the teams uh, when a patient has worsening symptoms or medical problems that our outreach workers aren't, you know, um, entitled to do for these patients. We go back to the nurses and share that information to so we're all on the same page with the patient and continuity of care. Um, <clears throat> what do you do when they don't have a home? So, um, when they don't have a home, we uh, we find other options like boarding cares or shelters that are available depending on the person's income. We provide we provide resources around housing that they're able to afford. If find any, then if they're willing to go into the shelter or if they're willing to go into our respite program or ELCP, we allow that. But if they're not willing to participate with the resources that we provide them, then it's their choice. Are you asking, do we have? No, we do not. <laughs> housing would be our main priority. Uh, there's not enough housing in our community. The markets are rising. So if we were to have um, possibly extra shelters or just a, a, a avenue of um, getting these patients into housing, stable housing, we'll be able to provide all these extra resources so they'll become more self-sufficient in their health. Um, uh, to me, yeah. I, I, I got used to the, the resources that we have, so I use the tools that that's available to me, but I could use a lot more, you know? <laughs> we, we definitely have, I, I could brainstorm about a lot of different tools that we need, but you know. <laughs> Right. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious when, when I know I know the homeless population fairly well through my other work and, and um, dealing with encampments and, and access to food. And, and I mean, I see uh, pushing around diet and, mm -hmm. and I know that there there's probably more food available to the homeless than there are homes mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. there are a lot of locations where they can get a hot meal or free food that's packaged right. Operation Dignity, St. Vincent de Paul, et cetera. Um, um, how 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 do those food options fit in with with your diet training? I mean, do do you find your clients are, are listening and able to actually take your advice, or do you feel that, especially with the homeless, I'm thinking that are, that don't want to go to a shelter because maybe they have a dog or they don't like the condition, mm -hmm. you know, they're getting their meals on the fly at, at these different locations. Find that there's a uh, saturation uh, with your with the information you're providing are they are they utilizing it is it is it having a noticeable impact and, and how do you measure that you know in your own anecdotal way or or as a as a program I find that it is having an impact um, we use a lot of different services like uh, emergency food banks and project open hand meals on wheels depends on the person and their housing uh, situation but they do uh, come back to us and thank us for, you know, getting con them connected to CalFresh if they don't have it or, you know, uh, get them connected to Project Open Hand, which is a delivery service to their homes or they'll be able to uh, go pick up groceries from uh, those, those services. So it, it definitely makes a difference in their lives that they uh, actually have at least one uh, meal a day, one meal a day, because I enroll patients and they let us know um, we don't have anything to eat at home. How how do we how are we supposed to you know go about this? And we provide as much resources as we can so they'll be able to get themselves to the, those pantries that's that's open, giving them those uh, numbers to call just to reach out to those services that are out there. But um, we just got limited to. Um, Project Open Hand has a waiting list now that we weren't, you know, so it's kind of, you know, limiting our services and kind of uh, resources there, but. Andrea's going to talk a little bit about just an example of a patient that would be kind of a, 
a, a good opportunity for you to see kind of what the work is. And then we're going to show a video of this patient and not how he's doing now. A patient that we've been, I've actually been working with him, I want to say for close to a year and a half now. Uh, his name is Thaddeus. He's 45 years old. Uh, he has diagnosis of COPD. He has a pacemaker. History also suffers from osteoarthritis and he's wheelchair bound. I'll talk briefly about some of the challenges that uh, Thaddeus faced as well as how we work to remove some of those barriers. Thaddeus definitely suffered from homelessness. He was uh, chronically homeless early on in our interventions. He was living in uninhabitable dwellings. He was living in, he, we, you know, he was in crack houses, on the streets, etc. Um, as far as transportation, lack of transportation, phone, and adequate food, he had no transportation to and from any of his medical appointments. He had no phone to coordinate any type of care, and he did not have access to adequate food. Helped the patient to sign up for paratransit, for transportation to and from his appointments. Helped the patient to sign up for a free cell phone through the Lifeline program so that we can coordinate care with his providers. And then we also connected him to meal delivery services because diet was a big part of his, of his uh, definitely suffered from some uh, undiagnosed mental health issues as well as depression. After working, he was working with a mental health provider that could not meet his needs, but did not either because they were too taxed or whatever the reason may be, they never ramped up the services at, you know, to a level that would actually be therapeutic for him. And so we referred back to Access and we advocated for him and got him established with a level one provider and got him connected with uh, intensive mental health case management. And we supplemented that with some medical case management. Uh, he definitely had a substance use disorder. The patient had been uh, using crack cocaine for over 10 years. And uh, <clears throat> given the patient's chronic homelessness and then longstanding addiction to crack cocaine, uh, we used the ASAM criteria and uh, figured out that he, his, he would best be placed in a sober living environment with outpatient uh, substance abuse treatment. And so we uh, made that referral and we ended up sending him to a sober living and outpatient facility out in uh, Manteca. And uh, he definitely had a lack of uh, trust in providers and the system of care. And so I literally accompanied this patient to every primary and specialty appointment and worked, you know, as a representative of our system to kind of reverse that distrust in the system. And once again, he had no family support, no friends, the, the negative influences in his life that he used with and things like that. And he had no, no support out in the community. And also he was feeling neglected because he was very close to his church community. But since he got deeper into his addiction and kind of alienated himself from that community, he's been feeling a need to reconnect. And so we connected the, the patient with the uh, Alameda County Care Alliance, which is a uh, church-based social program that provides advocates that uh, outreach to patients and they help them navigate systems such as housing, benefits, entitlement. But the most important thing that we felt for Thaddeus while he was working on his sobriety was that they provided that spiritual and that community support for those positive in front of our nurses, Lily is in the video as well. Oh no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much. This, this was really, the work you do is so very important. Um, I have a question. In, in your encounters with the various people that you are helping, um, you know, I have always been a bit frustrated that so much of the work that we do here, that you do, that cities do, etc., tend to be at 
the, what I would say at the back end of, of the patient or the human being. So I'm wondering, are there in your encounters, have you encountered or have you noticed one or two things that had those ingredients or those pieces been in their life earlier, would it have made a difference? You know, I'm thinking of education, job, uh, parent, different parent, money, uh, what, whatever you, you might. Is there, a, is there a theme that comes through here that you've noticed that if we'd had, if those things had happened when they were 12 or 15 or 9, would it have made a difference? Have you encountered any of that? Yeah, actually on several fronts I could say, you know, for one, with the patients actually dealing with the... Um, <laughs> You're, you're you're really referring them mostly yeah. because of the health issues, and certainly yeah. certainly had their diet changed or yeah, you know somebody one. had attention earlier, the health issues would be there. So I'm trying to think of more in the sociological yeah. aspect of of the lives that you encounter. Are there things that that agencies like ours, you know, we're more specific for healthcare, but but cities or schools or government agencies or even just citizens, it, are are there things that would have made a difference in the lives of these people earlier on? Definitely, I definitely believe so. For one, you know, on the health, on the on the health uh, aspect of it, I can definitely speak to you know toward one of Jimmy's patients, who kind of early on didn't really know what hypertension was, didn't know that it could lead to, you know, it can ramp up and lead to kidney problems or things like that. And now, that's actually another video we did, but he's actually now a dialysis patient. And he actually says, you know, if I just knew the importance of a kidney, it would have changed my life. Because now he's dependent on going to dialysis a couple times a week. You know, that's one, one of the aspects as far as the medical goes where just a little touch early on would have gone a long way, saved a lot of money, and made his quality of life a lot better. And then more from a social determinants uh, standpoint, I would have to say, you know, broke breeds broken, I believe. And, you know, from the person who has long-standing trauma from seeing someone killed or from someone who's been abused as a child, you know, just having those resources in the community goes a long way. You know, I've dealt with, with women who've been you know, misused by, by, by men, you know, starting as early as, you know, toddler years. And me as a male, I have to kind of work through, and I've even had to sit with her and say, you know, when people say it's great to have you here, it doesn't mean that they want you sexually or anything like that. It means that they're trying to welcome you into their environment and, you know, just things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, where had these things been addressed a lot earlier, I think that people's lives would have turned out a lot different we've been talking about lately is you know, if you go to the K6 clinic don't see any black men there if you go down to the ER it's full of black men and I think that is speaks to something that we can do which is to see how we can bring black men into our clinics or into healthcare early on because they are waiting until they have a disaster often before they'll come in and that's, I think that's something that we have a real chance to influence and that it, it, we just really need to think about it. Um, talked about if you want to find a date, you go to K6 because there's no men, just women. <laughs> I have a question. 
Yeah, and that's kind of a good segue. When you go to the ED and say there's four of those men are homeless and they have CHF or COPD um, uh, and they're all substance abusers, how do you, given the limited resources, you're not going to the ED every, you're not just stationed there, obviously, but how, how does that referral take place? How does the ED look at those five, four or five men at any one time and say, okay, let's call um, right, community yeah. Health. yeah. Right now, the ED doesn't have a complex care program. We get our patients from the, actually the inpatient unit. We did a, a pilot where we thought it, the ED really needs this. So, actually, DeAndre and I and Jimmy and uh, another nurse, we decided to do it, and it just wore us out. We we couldn't keep it up because those patients were so high need. We weren't getting our other things done, and it, it felt like we just couldn't. But we're certainly going to ask for this um, going forward because um, it's a great place to intervene. Yes, team, I, a team of like maybe three community outreach workers. It, it might not even take a nurse because they're getting some medical care right there, but to connect them and resource them and follow them for a few weeks, I think that would be a, a really good thing. And I think that what you said about those men not coming to K6, which is the primary mm -hmm. care medical clinic um, at Highland, but that's not meaning that they don't come for medical care. They're in the ED with your STDs or back aches or mm -hmm. baboons or whatever, and they have high blood pressure, mm -hmm. and we're not addressing it there. Mm -hmm. right. And we're saying, oh, you better go to your doctor. You have high blood pressure. But if we catch them there, mm -hmm. so I know that's not exactly your program, but mm -hmm. it would be a We've yeah. actually been in talks, you know, about that because it's inevitable, you know, it's kind of a continuum where you're either going to access the medical care routinely, or you're going to be that high utilizer, department being dialyzed or what may have you. And so we've definitely been talking about, you know, how to reach those people early, and I think that visible in the community. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was just going to sort of add some additional context here. So, so it's always, I, I'm always mindful of when we talk about population health and sort of aligning uh, uh, the, the incentives of population health for the types of outcomes and delivery model you want. That almost sometimes seems like uh, there is this perverse incentive to churn. And quite honestly, in healthcare, that sometimes is the case. I think in a public health setting, that's not nearly as much the motivation for what happens. So we're not saying, oh, we won't provide complex care management for patients in the ED because then they won't come back to the ED and we'll lose that volume or they won't be admitted and we'll lose that volume. We are not hurting for volume per se. No. What we're saying is that, just to, to Maya's point, when you, when, if you can work with a partner like a health plan to say, give me a capitation in X amount and allow me to manage this population, I may actually be able to invest in additional resources for a model that I know would work that I can't do right now because I, I'm, I'm stuck in this sort of uh, vortex of I got to provide the service to get the reimbursement to then provide more services to get more reimbursement. So I'm just mm -hmm. trying to like, we're trying to shift all of that, not because there are these perverse incentives to make more. In fact, uh, you know, there's a possibility you saw as um, Dr. Katz presented uh, that, you know, utilization could go up in some areas or this mm -hmm. could take a while longitudinally to do, but you need to shift the, the free system and be able to invest in that shift um, <clears throat> excuse me, and your reimbursement model in a way that actually allows for more of this to actually happen. Right. Um, so 
1,096 high utilization patients, of about 600 of them, approximately. About 600 <clears throat> Could we look at their utilization rate before and after they received your prior and the year after? We have done that. Um, you have? Yeah. That was part of the data that Sarah shared with you. So that the, the oh. consolidation of the complex care management program, uh, if you look at her slide deck, I think it is, uh, which one was it? It was one of those that said the success of the uh, 2010 waiver, and it said that the complex care program reduced it. Um, um, uh, ED utilization for a high-risk population by 18% and inpatient utilization by some other percentage. I can't remember the exact number. Oh, okay. But that's that's the result of the work that this group is doing. They've recently did a little, um, I guess it maybe four or five months ago, did a little um, dorking out session where he took a look at both care transitions and uh, clinic-based patients and just looked at their number of admissions the year before we in NAFTA, and for both programs, there's about a 20% reduction in uh, admissions. ER. Great. We'll do Maria, oh. and then and then and then. Actually, Kinkini was first. Oh, I'm sorry, Kinkini, please. Oh, Valuable work, and I think as we that that early intervention and building the community resiliency, being, and as we evolve and redesign our own health system, we're better at doing that, so that it will be our young men, our brothers. And how could we leverage um, better volunteers? I'm, I'm almost envisioning that we need a Peace Corps, but it would be Health Corps. <laughs> Can I, I wanted to try. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going with your question, but I have an answer directly okay. to do, do you think it's feasible with the idea? Because from what you've seen, you might want to tell us, oh, that's not doable. They really need to be skilled in nursing or they have to have a social work. I'm already seeing the great answer that maybe that's not the case. What would you say at a bare minimum, seniors in high school volunteering or even a, a freshman in college? At the bare say? minimum, I think that all we need to get on the road to success is people that have a knowledge of the community, of the resources that are out there, mm -hmm. and someone who's motivated to help inspire change on a person-by-person -person basis. I think that, at the bare minimum, would be all that we would need. And is there training to bring someone on board beyond what they're We've done quite a lot. I know I do uh, training for the incoming childs on the ASAM criteria, okay. which is okay. placement for substance okay. abuse. I do training in motivational interviewing. I kind of have, like, piles and piles of uh, entitlement benefits, applications, things like that, that I train people up on how to, uh, how to navigate those systems and how to advocate for the patient in, in various situations, things like applying for disability insurance, how to interface with the worker, you know, how to pull medical records, get them to them, because a lot of people don't know. If you, we, we pull the medical records, we can get someone disability within two months, three months. Yeah other than a year and a half or things like that. Trustee Hernandez, actually, this goes to your question and I think Trustee Banerjee's question, but a trustee partner, uh, um, head of the foundation, Deborah, just sent this over to me uh, to say, you might want to mention the Highland Health Advocates Program. Yes, I was going to do that. Total layup. <laughs> I and I thought Maya was going to do that as well. Well done, Ms. Barnes. Well done. Well done. Actually, my, if you want to talk about Highland Health Advocates, it's a volunteer core that we're now turning into AHS health advocates, uh, so, so we can talk about how it came about and, mm -hmm. you know, what, what so we do So the Highland there. Health Advocates was started actually by a resident in the ER, mm -hmm. and it's um, right now, I, I think, about 130 volunteers. They're mostly um, Berkeley, Kyle East Bay uh, students who are kind of in, a, in the middle of 
you know, they've finished college or halfway through, and they're medical school or legal profession or whatever, and they need a, a period of tourism, they commit to a year of uh, half day and um, basically a resource hub for AHS. So a physician can basically kind of write a prescription for, I need a health advocate to give, get food for this patient. So even patients that aren't ours. And we've used them and actually we just interviewed a person who would be shared, they'd be half time working with health advocates and half time with us doing resources around housing. So we're, we work pretty Mostly with them, and they're not—they're not going into the community. Their work is a little different, but there's a whole range of things that need to happen. So that kind of volunteer is really helpful. Day-to-day um, -day work, they definitely—they increase our bandwidth. They make it so that we could see more people, because you know they're kind of stationed in the hospital. And so if I have a patient that has a crazy share of cost, I can you know go over to the SK. You know, can you guys get to working on this for me? contact with the med legal referral, make a referral over to, for example, East Bay Community Law Center. And so they're taking care of that legwork while I'm doing the rapport building, the sitting with the patient, and you know things like that. And so it definitely allows us to extend our reach. And so we definitely see the benefits of having the health advocates as well. They're really great, yeah. I was gonna ask if there were other questions, but then I was gonna. <laughs> it's going so, from HS. Yes, that's, yeah. our, that's our plan uh, now. Unfortunately, uh, actually, Wendy started it, who reminded uh, Unfortunately, he's going to Harbor, where I just left. <laughs> so yeah. he's going to be in the yard dock there. We're, we're losing him, but the program and his legacy for this incredible work will... I did tell him he's not gone yet. He may not like me, but I may try to keep Did you want to add something? It speaks to, again, in close partnership with the Foundation Frameworks to further... Uh, so very much for coming. We appreciate you taking your Friday out mm -hmm. and uh, wish you for your work. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Del Vecchio has asked if I might, and probably because of the luggage after lunch kind of thing, that we go into a team building that I'm actually going um, So what I'd like to have you do, and surprisingly, everybody in the room is going to participate in this one. Uh, so... Uh...